Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 15th, 2015. This is episode 1575 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it's your time to call in your questions to the Think Line, 866-65-THINK. Again, the number, 866-65-THINK. This is not a live show, so you will get a pre-recorded message. Leave me your question. Try to ask your question or make your point immediately, and then give follow-up details. Trust me, I've been doing this for a long time. It will work out better for you. I consistently get calls from people that start out kind of rambling on about it and they can't remember and then they all dang it and they hang up and then they call back and they follow the formula and they get on the air. I, I already know when I see like the same number twice in a row in the queue, I'm like, watch, watch. And I see the first question, the first call is like a lot smaller than the second one. I'm like, here it goes. And it's every time. So trust me, do that. Just even if you don't worry about your details at all, if you even like write down your question or your point in one or two sentences, read it and then give me the details, I promise you, you'll be more likely to get on the air. And uh, as far as questions for the council go, hang tight because I have some more information on the expert council uh, questions and how we're doing the new format and why it's working better and why I want you to follow the new format. Uh, but we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, one more thing on the calls. Guys, remember, there's no one on the other end of the line to tell you that you are breaking up and like that. So make sure there's a couple bars on your phone if you're on a cell phone and don't call, you know, running a weed eater or a chainsaw or on the back of a motorcycle or with the window down in a truck doing 150 miles an hour. I, I just can't hear you and then I can't use the call. Anyway, before I get to your calls, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor the day number one today, Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is an awesome guy. He's a member of our expert council, long-term sponsor of the show, and he just has an awesome website. If you get over to HarvestEating.com, you're going to find all kinds of great stuff. First, you can find the stuff that he sells, his organic teas, his spices, seasoning mixes, and other products. I use Chef Keith's spices and seasoning mixes on a daily basis, pretty much. Uh, if I'm not re reaching for uh, the northern Italian, I'm probably reaching for low and slow or Montana steak or the new prime rib stuff or the chicken curry. It's just all awesome. He also teaches you how to focus on the technique over the recipe and cooking, how to make cooking a life skill, how to cook seasonally and locally. Uh, he's got a lot of great videos on his website, a lot of great blog posts, a lot of great recipes, and he's got an awesome podcast. You can find it all at HarvestEating.com. And remember, Chef Keith is a member of our expert council. If you have a, a question, about cooking, you get it into me and we'll get you an answer for it on a Friday show. Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com, long-term sp sponsor, great partner, great fellow prepper, and just one of the most awesome guys you'll ever meet. Check out his website again today at HarvestEating.com. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontalis saying to me, hey Jack, we love what you're doing. We want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show. And I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what, just, just stick with us. 
And when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later, it was February of the next year, that we launched the MSB. And we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I call them the original Survival Podcast sponsor, because they were first, and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? If you check out SafeCastle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping, uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original Survival Podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of My Support Brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. With that, let's go ahead and take a look at the history segment. The year is 1575, because the episode is 1575. I think the one I picked today will surprise you how far back these types of things go. First one we have is everyone is singing from the same sheet of music. We have and the waters parted, the uh, Valdivia earthquake, and the first modern battle tactics used in Japan. These are all from the awesome Alex Shrugged who puts these uh, history segments together for us at TSP Wiki, the survival, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and history wiki that you can be part of, you can con contribute to. Just get over to tspwiki.com to learn more uh, or to read the uh, history segments that I will not be reading today because I'm going to read everyone is singing from the same sheet of music. Sounds good? Not so much. Queen Elizabeth I grants the first patent in England. Surprise, it's a patent to control music copying. Huh. Thomas Tallis and his student William Byrd are granted exclusive rights to print their sheet music and music paper, which has lines to compose music. However, their first music book will not be well received, meaning that it will not sell well because they publish a very large body of work in one book, and people don't want to spend their money on so large a publication, regardless of how good it might be. The composers will return to the Queen and beg for help. She will grant them a leasehold on various properties for 21 years, which is the length of the patent. It is essentially an artist's royalty subsidy, which is considered normal for the time. Getting a monopoly from the government to sell a single type of product is not normal for the time. When I reviewed Thomas Tallis' music, I was stunned at how good it sounds. It's polyphonic. Like modern music, you'd hear... This is Alex Shrug's take. I'm sorry, I skipped that. My take by Alex Shrug. When I reviewed Thomas Tallis' music, I was stunned at how good it sounds. It's polyphonic. Like modern music, you'd hear in the background of a movie. I see why an aristocrat would want to subsidize composers like this. But granting them exclusive rights to print music would be like having Reba McIntyre as the only person who could legally publish CDs, including blank CDs. This would force every artist to go through her before they could sell a single song on a CD, including hip-hop singers, while she is trying to sell her own music. Guess how that would work out? But Talis and Bird's marketing problem was the equivalent of creating an album with 100 songs and pricing the album at $100. Even if the songs were first rate and was only a dollar a song, the entrance fee would be a little too steep for most people. So 
here's the, the way I look at this. First of all, um, here you have government stepping in and granting exclusive rights to a paper with lines on it. Not the music itself. Not like, okay, this is a copyright. This is a patent on paper that has lines to put notes on it. And giving one person the exclusive rights to that. And then enforcing that patent. And then, when with a complete monopoly, the party that was given the complete monopoly is too stupid to know how to capitalize on it. Giving them a land lease to subsidize them because their marketing sucked for the duration of the patent. I don't know if that was maybe designed to open the vaults a little bit and say, hey, maybe you need to make this a little easier for people to use your stuff. We'll give you this as your royalty. Um, another thing is, this is actually not much different than the modern music model in many ways, uh, including going back to, let's say, record players and you know albums, LPs, and 45s. It didn't take the record industry long to figure out that, hey, not everybody's going to buy this great big honking record with a whole bunch of songs on it. They want that one song they hear on the radio. So we'll give them that one song with one of the other songs from the album. We'll make sure the other song get one of the best songs on the album so we can sell them another single later on, and maybe then they'll buy the LP. Um, and then that sort of kind of went away. That sort of kind of went away when we went into cassette tapes and A-track tapes. You didn't buy a tape. I think somebody did it for a while. I do kind of remember some single cassettes, but I don't think it worked out real well. So once the cassette took over for the album... That model sort of went away because it didn't fit anymore. But then what happened? Then somebody said, screw your patents, and created methods of sharing music because it's just information. And the music industry had to adapt to that. So things like iTunes and other music services came out and began to do what? To allow people to purchase individual songs or entire albums, though it's really more of a collection now. The term albums kind of lost all its meaning. And with that, more and more people were willing to spend money to support the artist, but also realized that they were supporting the record company more than the artist. Artists started to go direct, and now we have all types of services that operate for a single fee and allow unlimited access to music. The more protection given to an industry by government, the less innovation there is. And sometimes it takes anarchy to force the innovation. That's what happened in music. That is what happened with Napster and LimeWire and other services like them. Even though the government continued to enforce a monopoly of control on something as simple as replicatable information, when somebody made that replicatable information so easy to replicate and the law so complicated to enforce, the music industry adapted, proving that if we get government out of these things we'd have much faster innovations and rapid development of technologies. Companies would then be forced to find an actual value versus simply sit on top of a monopoly. My take by Jack Spearco. I got a lot of stuff for you guys today uh, to, to go through and before we get to your first call. I know a lot of you guys skip some of this stuff. I'd like you to listen today if you could for me because even if one of them's not for you, some of them might be for you. So the first thing I want to tell you about real quick, and I'll put out a post today about this, uh, and there's a post already on the Perma Ethos blog, the June workshop up in West Virginia. We still have some tickets, but we're getting close to selling out. 
I'd like to sell out, though, and I'd like to get as many of you guys up to the West Virginia farm as possible. I want to tell you some of the things that have been added since we initially put this program together. Uh, in fact, I'll just give you kind of the outline. Day one is optional. Thursday, June 11th is an extra fee if you want to come. Uh, but if you do, we're going to be doing some butchering workshops. Kevin and I are going to go and kill Skinny Mama the pig. She's not so skinny anymore. She's uh, She tried to kill the last couple people that uh, that wanted to load her up and, and, and butcher her by normal means. So Kevin and I are going to go put a 308 through her head. We're going to hang her up like a deer, and we're going to show you how to take about a, a pig apart really, really fast. Uh, and we're if you when you learn that if you ever go deer hunting you'll be able to do the same thing. We are going to make use of that pig, uh, but I don't think we're going to be scraping her because uh, guinea hogs, according to Mike Virtues, we don't need to be scraping. So we're going to skin her, and we are going to turn her into some awesome, awesome, awesome stuff. Next up, Jesse Tegmeyer on that day is going to be running a workshop on butchering chickens, ducks, and rabbits, and a lot of that meat is going to be served in the uh, in the workshop for meals. We're going to do a sausage-making workshop, turning Skinny Mama into sausage in the afternoon and early evening. Uh, we got a grinder, a meat mixer, sausage stuffers. It's going to be great. So if you just come, that's the extra workshop at the first, beginning of the whole thing that's kind of appended onto the, the front end. If you only come to the main workshop or come to both of them, we're going to be doing swell construction using laser level and A-frames, and we're going to be plowing and shaping swales using a two-bottom plow. This is going to be a great way to learn how to make swales without heavy equipment, without dozers and excavators. Uh, usually, if you're anywhere near farm country, you can borrow a tractor and a plow if you have to. This is going to be awesome. It's how we put in all our swales on um, Eliza Spring so far. We're going to be doing a, a, cl a class on plant grafting and misting systems, showing the same misting systems that Nick Ferguson and I use for plant propagation. John Dowie's coming down from New Hampshire. He's going to be doing mini greenhouse construction. We're going to build three of them. You're going to be able to go home and build greenhouses for next to nothing if you come. Uh, Patrick Rorman's coming to do a class on sharpening. He's also going to have a special deal on the Genesis neck knife, two sharpening stones, and the DVD on how to sharpen for $199. That's $100 off the normal price. Patrick is going to need to know how many of those to bring to the event, so you need to get through, through to him on his website, mtknives.net, if you want to pick one of those up. On knives, though, Chris Prater's coming, really great guy from our community. He's going to bring a little forge. He's going to show you how to forge little simple knives and spend some time discussing beekeeping as well. But he's going to show you how you can make knives from scratch and be under 100 bucks to get started. Really cool little knives. Not the master stuff that Patrick does, but really cool stuff that, you know, could begin a career in knife making or just be something awesome you learn how to do. Mike Vertries is going to do a class on soils. He's been going to Elaine Ingham's classes. He's going to do a class that basically teaches you how to get your plants, your garden, and your farm off of welfare by actually improving the soil biology at a really high level. We'll be doing the barter blanket. There's a lot of really cool stuff that's going on. This is going to be an awesome event. Please come if you can. Again, this is in West Virginia. The uh, the leadoff day is the 11th. You can come in on the 11th to set up for the rest of the event if you're not participating in the butchering workshop and all and not pay that extra $100. Bucks. Um, but we just kind of ask that you, on the honor system, don't insert yourself into something that... You didn't pay for it because we're trying to run this at at least a little bit of a profit here and serve the heck out of you guys. So that I wanted to tell you. The next thing is if you like the Duck Chronicles, I got something great for you. We have come out with a Duck Chronicles t-shirt and uh, a triple entendre, Duck the System. Yes, Duck the System. Uh, we have them in green and brown. They're available at the gear shop. I put a post out yesterday. There will be a link in today's show notes. 
These are really cool shirts. They'll do a lot to help spread the message of the Survival Podcast. And even if you don't watch the Duck Chronicles, I think you'll like the shirt. Again, tell the system to duck off with a Duck the System shirt. Check them out today. Um, next up today, I forgot to do the plan of the week um, this week because I took Tuesday off. I did put it in Wednesday show, but I didn't talk about it. So Bob Wells brings us an awesome plant every week that we can learn, that we can grow to produce food for ourselves. This week is the Santa Rosa plum. This plum's adaptable from zones 5 to 10. That's most of the country. Uh, the tree's beautiful, large red fruits with gold flesh. The Santa Rosa is a big producer and bears sweet plums that are delicious when fresh eaten, cooked, or canned. The tree is considered very vigorous and one of the easiest fruit trees to grow successfully. True to its name, it originated in Santa Rosa, California, all the way back in 1906. Uh, it's heat tolerant, ripens in mid-July, and is self-fruitful. It doesn't require a pollinator making an ideal for smaller spaces. Bob Wells Nursery specializes in edible landscape plants and, and trees, including fruit trees, berry plants, vine fruit, nut trees, as well as other hard-to-find specialty trees. Find this plant more at BobWellsNursery.com. Remember, you MSB guys get 10% off all purchases from Bob Wells. And let me tell you, when they say this tree is hardy, And, and a survivor, it is. This was, I have a place I call the zone of death in my swales. The, the first year we put plants into them, we planted them too late in the year to run a workshop. We didn't have proper irrigation in place, and the earth was scorched in the heat because of the, the orientation of the swale in this one zone. I, I pretty much lost everything in that plant except one Arkansas black apple that looked dead but came back, and a Santa Rosa plum. And a Santa Rosa plum never even blinked. This is a tough tree, guys, and it produces a lot. So it's one you might want to consider adding to your edible landscaping. And since it's self-fruitful, you guys with the small backyards that want a plum and not necessarily two plums, because there's a lot of plums come off one tree, this might be one of them to consider. So check that out today. Uh, next up today, I want to, uh, to tell you guys a little bit about a critique I got this week in the show. And I welcome the critiques, but it doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to take them. And sometimes I'm going to explain why it is the way that it is. So somebody noted that the show that I did with uh, key line plowing and permaculture and stuff on some levels was way, like I didn't under, like basically said I didn't get it all. I didn't understand it all. It's beyond me. And then on some levels it's just not my thing and, and some other stuff like that. This was one person with all this critique. So this isn't harsh criticism trying to make the show better. Well, I understand that. But one thing I think people, especially people that are new to this show, need to understand about Survival Podcast is we are not AM radio, and we are not cable television. We're not even XM satellite radio, and we are not even your typical podcast. Most forms of entertainment, in order to have broad appeal in the Big Ten, everything I was told, by the way, that I needed to have it. So many people tell me, you need a bigger tent, you need a broad appeal. You need like That was all I heard when I started the show out. You're too focused and... Bullshit, okay? Let me explain the problem with that. This is why all TV shows about the subjects you actually like end up being horribly stupid. If they're reality-based in any way. Okay? This is why all live radio ends up being horribly stupid. This is why most podcasts, not all, but most podcasts end up being horribly stupid. Because what you do to have that broad appeal, you have to put every piece of content out to appeal to the lowest level of interested party. And I don't mean that in insulting ways. I mean that in academic ways and sometimes insulting ways. It's, it's both. So if I'm putting out a, a TV show that's going to go out to uh, 20 million people, 
I have to make sure that show appeals to number 19,252. And that every episode does that. With TSP, there are going to be episodes you're just going to go, not my thing, don't listen to that episode. Or give it a shot, you might find out it is. There also will at times be episodes that will have a bit of, a, a, of an elevated knowledge requirement as a base knowledge. So you'll listen to it and go, I don't understand that, I don't understand that, I don't understand that. If instead of saying, I don't like that, you tell me what you don't understand, then in the future I try to bring back some basics into it And then maybe you go back to that one with a foundational knowledge and come up to it. This is not arrogance. Okay, but there are things we've been doing this show. Um, this will be our seventh year in June. Seven years. We've laid down a hell of a lot of foundational knowledge in seven years. And sometimes a show will go beyond that foundational knowledge. And I can't always do a show from a foundational knowledge level. Or we lose the people that have been here a long time. So some of the folks that are saying that, maybe go back and listen to some earlier episodes and, and, and follow the progression through. It'd be another way to do it. And let me know. Now, in this particular show with Keyline Plowing, this is difficult. And, and here's where I'll show you. I am a rank amateur at Keyline Design. Every designer in the permaculture, sustainable agriculture, restoration agriculture, regenerative agriculture, all that umbrella has techniques that they favor and that they've gotten really good at. All the big names have. Jeff Lawton likes contour-based soil systems. Uh, Seb Holzer is a terrace-based, hugel-mound-based, pond-integrated water flow systems management. Okay, Darren Daughtry is a keyline guy. Mark Shepard is a keyline guy that specializes in developing civil pasture models that work with broad-scale agriculture in the conventional United States Department of Agricultural world. Right? And every single person has a different place that they're, they're really tied in at. I have tried to be a generalist. I've tried to take in all these things. Keyline is one of those things that I haven't done a ton of broad acre projects. It's why I brought Mark Shepard's team in with us at Alcoa for the big project there. And it's hard to explain when you have visual. It's even harder audio-wise. So I'll do my best with that topic. But I think that's one of those academic topics that if you want to know more, you got to go to the sources of that data. I'm, I'm a, a contour-based designer. I like mainframe swales. I like... On contour, I like ponds filling and backfilling out of swales. I like food forest systems. I don't care if my rows are reasonably spaced. That's not what I'm trying to do, but I get the key line thing. And I'm trying to make sure that you get whatever you want, whether it's how to store energy in the form of batteries and backup systems and gas and, and everything else. And I'm also trying to make sure you get the, the, the sustainable techniques. And, and if you notice, this show is a lot more about process and technique than stuff. Because if you are dependent on stuff, you're still dependent on others. I'm trying to bring you full-on liberation knowledge with Survival Podcast. So that's why they have. So hopefully that's well-received. Uh, last bit on the Expert Council. You can hear from a lot of the Expert Council members today. I've had a request, and that request is, can you put all the Expert Councils on a page, who they are and what they do? I used to have a big list of them uh, in every episode, and I took that away. And the truth is, right now, here's what I'm doing with the Expert Council. I am going to a new format. That format is you email me your questions for the expert council. When I get those questions, 
I then turn them into a pin-down question, put it in text, and send it in an email that goes out to every council member. I send one email every week. It goes out to all council members. They have till Friday morning, 9 a.m. Central Time, to get me an answer. Some people are great about doing it every week. Some people get things in the way, but they're good about consistently doing it, and some not so much. So here's what's happening right now. They're being tested is the best word I can have for it. And anybody that goes three full weeks without a response goes not kicked off. Let's call it the the inactive reserve. Just kind of you, you tell me when you want to do this thing and, and be serious about it because it's a five minute response once a week. So I need I want to have about ten consistent council members and bring you that much variety every Friday. So what I'm doing right now is when I get to the end of, of basically this month. I'm going to make some decisions based on the response rates of my expert council members, and some are going to go into the the inactive reserve status. And I'm going to have us, and I'm going to put out the people that aren't in that inactive reserve status on a page, and we're going to build that up to about ten people that I can consistently count on to at least give me three out of four responses a month. Um, for instance, I know that Nick Ferguson is is off on a, a deployment on a project and has no way to answer his question this week. That's going to happen. I have days I take a show off, but. Um, I'm looking for people that are you know, be 50% to 75% consistent with giving me an answer. And if they're not, no matter how much I like them, no matter how much I value them, it's not that I don't want them on the show. They don't fit into this, this council. This council is designed to bring you the, the, the most dramatic variety of information every Friday on self-sufficiency, self-reliance, sustainability, health, fitness, tactical, practical, you name it. That's what we're building right now. You're watching the formation of that. So those of you that have been looking for a list, it will come, but it will come when the permanent spot has been earned. And to be fair, there's people who have earned their permanent spot already. Uh, you couldn't dynamite them out. Um, but I want to do this in one fell swoop and then add as necessary to get us up to a 10 count. That said, if you think you would be a good member of this expert council, this is what I'm looking for. People that we that don't have a subject we don't already have, people that have a subject that's diverse enough to get 50 questions a year to you, and real credentials. I mean, the people we have on these councils are not just random ass clowns I picked out of nowhere. These guys know what they're doing. The Bee Whisperer, Ben Falk, Stephen Harris, Nick Ferguson. These guys really, I mean, Darby Simpson, these guys really know what they're doing. Um, and they, they have a, a profession lined up with it. So there's been people that have asked me on the council before who ha I believe everything they say about how good they are. And what their subject is is great for like this little tiny narrow niche that, you know, maybe you get four or five questions a year for. And that's that I, I can't use that for this. I can use that for an interview. If you're that person, submit an interview form. And remember, every member of this council started out as a guest. So I also need new guests for the show. And when you fill out your guest form, please be compelling and make sure I know what you're talking about. I've gotten some guest forms lately, and I'm like, I don't know. And I don't have a ton of time to vet guests. So I'm looking for you to present yourself well in the guest form when you fill out the guest form. But And I also get emails from people all the time that say, I know I'm going long on this, man, but I, I just, there's a lot of stuff that I need to catch up with you guys on. I get a lot of guest forms, from, or no, I get a lot of emails from people. You should interview so-and-so. Here's his number. Here's his website. Here's, tell them to come fill out the guest form. And please tell them to listen to an episode of the show or two first, because I have found the guests that do not know this community make terrible guests. They really do. 
people that just want the exposure of the show, I have gotten to where if I look at a guest form and I can tell this person has no idea what we do, delete it. I delete it. I absolutely delete it because I love you guys. I really do. And I've been busting my ass for you guys for seven years, and I have figured out in those seven years that it's the people that care about this community that do the best job of being guests and council members and contributors. And this is a community that's built itself up to the point where we don't necessarily need someone coming from the outside to take a piece of it and leave with it. We need people coming in and joining what we're doing and then doing their own thing and building their own niches off of that. I love springboarding people to success, um, but I am not looking for people that come in with a tick-like mentality. I'll attach myself, I'll extract, and I'll fall off and reproduce somewhere else. That's that's not what we're looking for in guests, council members, contributors. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take your first question today. This one's for me. And again, I'm sorry that this intro went really, really long for an intro. But there's just a ton that I wanted to catch up with you guys on. Hi, Jack. This is Karen from the high desert of Southern California. Uh, for those of us who are older and without family, I was wondering if you have any ideas on how to team up or partner with other people in a permaculture-based homestead lifestyle. In my case, I'm 55, no family, and hope to retire within four years. I'm a Permaethos founding member, have my PDC from Jeff Lawton's first online course, and attended Permaculture Voices 1. I currently have a house on two and a half desert acres, but want to leave California and acquire a bit more property where I can get into permaculture and homesteading more or less full-time. I've also been a dog breeder and exhibitor for the past 20-plus years and have a good reputation as a conscientious breeder. I do envision expanding my breeding program beyond that of the hobbyist level, but will maintain the quality that's earned my reputation. I realize it will be difficult to accomplish my goals of a thriving, profitable permaculture homestead and successful dog business by myself. I work hard, but there's only so much I can do in a day. It would be great to partner with people with a similar vision and who would want to carry on with it into the future. I guess we all hit a point where we'd like to leave a legacy. I'm assuming I'm not the only one in this situation, so any ideas for us rather independent older folks without families but with some assets on connecting with others would be greatly appreciated. Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, there's there's a lot going on there, and I definitely want to see more people partner up with community. And I don't really care if it's permaculture or homesteading or just uh, active partnerships. And I, I, I think that, first of all, there's a misconception. So this question comes from the angle of, so I don't, I'm not married, I don't have kids, I don't have any family, so I don't have anybody to do this with. There's a hell of a lot of us out there that have plenty of family and still don't have anybody to do this with because our family doesn't want to come along for the ride. Now, most of us that are married have at least some level of support from our partner in our marriage. Even if they don't want to be actively involved, just having someone that's part of your life makes a lot of this stuff easier. And there's generally some things that just about anybody will do uh, to help out. And just a little bit of help goes a long way. So we do have that if we're married. But... I think there's this misconception that if somebody has a lot of family that lives near them, that it's easier to put together a community around this. And generally, those are the hardest people to convince to do anything. Uh, if they're your parents, they have powdered butt syndrome, which means if they've ever powdered, your, powdered and wiped your butt, they don't listen to you. Um, and, and your kids a lot of times don't listen to you, especially as they get into those, you know, those formative years where they're starting to build their own thing and they want to go off and do their own thing, and they really should. That's part of their life. So don't think that just because somebody has family that it's all easy. The next thing is, 
I think it's dramatic to me how many people ask that that question one way or another, and yet it's so hard for you guys to find each other. Um, I would say, you know, get on Zello on the TSP channel and say, hey, we're looking to, to do something here. Get in the regional forums and say we're looking to do something here. Here's what I think the biggest problems are. First and foremost, people think they're going to go make a living in permaculture. I, I think what you do is you make a living and you put permaculture into that. I think that's what the, the, the one of the biggest disconnects. There's an article going around right now by a millennial about how hard it is in permaculture, and he can't make a living with it, and he's worked so hard, and it's it's all. And if, if we don't start having nonprofits pay permaculture teachers, permaculture will lose its initiative and 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 dry up and blow away. Like it hadn't made it from 1972 till now without him. Um, And he's invented an entire new way to do things, and yet nobody wants to pay for his classes. Well, maybe you should make some money before you start telling people a new way to do things on something that they've been doing well for 30 years. right? So that mentality is not what you have, but that sort of mentality that it's a thing that you teach and do, and therefore you make money with it. And there are people that can make good money as teachers, and there's people that can make great money as teachers because they're really good teachers or they're really great teachers. And there's a lot of people that think they're good teachers because they understand it, but they don't understand that teaching in a way, on some levels, is a little bit like acting. Like you have to entertain and engage a class. You have to make them want to listen to you. So that 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 discipline of teaching and permaculture is not 100% knowledge-based. It's knowledge and it's technique. Uh, the, there are great people that can do great things, but you can't listen to them for 10 minutes in a row. So that's just one example. You have to find the things that are going to work for you. Um, I think some of the people that are making the best money in permaculture have gotten a job with employment and bring the permaculture into the employment. People that are working in education, in the university systems, inside the agricultural departments, the research departments, and things like that. Uh, and then people that are doing active farming and things like that. So just make sure when you say you want a profitable permaculture thing, you, you, you temper that with some reality. Like if you want to be profitable in, in, in the, the agricultural world, the best thing you can do is find a piece of land, lease it, put a couple thousand chickens, a couple hundred pigs on it. And get and with portable infrastructure, you can start all that for about ten thousand dollars. You can make a full time living in your first year if you don't screw everything up, and you might, right? So that that's not really going to work for the caller. But I'm just saying, like, we need to start getting that in our heads. Like, I'm going to do a whole show maybe next week on this type, and I don't even want to call it permaculture anymore. What I want to call it is agrarian regenerative mentality. I, I don't know. Anything that has to do with being connected to the land and growing things and developing and farming and, and what have you. Like what does it really take, you know, with permaculture being one component of that to make money at that. So be careful with the profitable aspirations. Now the community thing I think is a beautiful idea. And I think that we need it's the same thing that I give advice to people and they say, I want to find people to hunt or fish with. Stop focusing on the thing and focus on the relationship. So if you start maybe by doing something really simple, what if you started running, find a public facility so it's safe for everybody? Because I don't want to bring strangers to my home that I don't know, that I don't have some level of connection with. Um, but if you find a public place where you can do audiovisual stuff and start running screenings. You know, there's a new permaculture documentary out called Inhabit. Uh, or there's, a, there's one I was told about yesterday. It's on Netflix called OMG GMO. 
right? It explains the GMO thing. And there's a lot of great stuff out there. What if you just ran some stuff like that? You know, at a civic center or, or a church or something and, and put it out, you know, through that organization and through Craigslist and stuff like that. It's free. Come and, and meet some like-minded people. Bring in some, you know, chips and stuff like that that are just basic snacks so people have things and some drinks and just get people together and then start finding people from that type of activity. That's a way. Again, getting involved in the regional forums, the Zello network with TSP and, and, Here's the, the thing I think that I see as the big problem. Most people that want to do this want not so much to be in control of it, but be in control of the where. Like, I want it to be here, and then this person wants it to be here, and then this person wants it to be here. And all these people could work together, but they're geographically separated. This person's still got full-time employment, but could but has some financial resources. This person's retiring and could go anywhere, but doesn't want to go where it's cold or where it's hot. And, and somehow you have to find enough people... They want to be in the type of place that you want to be in to sort of make some of this stuff work. And I want to be dead honest. It's not easy. It's, it's, it's not. Because people are always the most complicated component in any system that you ever put together. So let's say you found a piece of land and everybody was willing to go in on it. Well, where are you going to live? Okay, if there's a house, who gets the house? You're going to live in the house together? I mean, you might want to listen to Paul Wheaton, some of his stuff, you know, how to have 14 people living in one house without having knife fights. It's, it's not easy. So I don't want to oversimplify the issue. But I do want to say that groups don't need to be 50 people running a permaethos farm, uh, which I, I don't even know if that model works. I mean, we're still playing around trying to figure out how that model works. What, what's the right size? What's the right mechanisms? How does this work? Um, four or five people can get a lot done that one person never could. And, you know, there are properties out there that have two or three homes on them that are out of the price range of one, but not out of the price range of, you know, a group. Now, this is sticky. I've been iffy on some of the group stuff right from the beginning because people have different expectations than they're going to have realized. I've worked with plenty of people. I thought, well, this person will be really great. And, you know, they're not doing the things that they said they were going to do. It's not that they're not working hard, but they're not doing productive things. And they're not doing the things they committed to doing. So it's it's difficult um, to, to assemble things like that and, and to get everybody's expectations met. So I almost think you're better off with having no expectations other than everybody will help each other. And everybody will spend time together. And everybody will work together. And everybody will find their place And it would be best if people had their own space that they were responsible for, and they do whatever they want with that, and then you have community interactions that naturally form. This is how villages work. This is how, how tribes work, that people find their place. Um, of course, with tribes, if you don't do something, you get it thrown out. And that doesn't really work in our modern world, so you have to be careful. So I wish I had a better answer here. But I'd love to hear from people who have actually done it, who've actually put together groups that are living and working together. And and here's the big thing. I, I think it has to come off of this, I want it to be permaculture, I want it to be homesteading. Like, that has to be a piece of it. Like, what's wrong with four or five people that have jobs, at least for the time being, getting together, using that income to buy a place where each can have their own space putting their own housing on it and forming community that way 
and transitioning over time. I think that, and then having a person like you would be so valuable to me if I was doing that. Because I have someone who's going to retire, who's going to be on the, pro just to be there. Even if you're not, you know, and can we set up systems that make, like, okay, well, if we need this area irrigated, all you have to do is turn a valve and then turn it off, like I've set up on my property. Well, you don't have to be physically fit. You don't have to spend a lot of time to do that. You just have to remember to do it. I know we can automate that, but some of it's hard to automate. Like, that would be really valuable to me. So you have to find the strengths and weaknesses of each individual. I hope that helps you. Thanks for your call. At this point, uh, let's take a call for an expert council member. Uh, this call will be for Michael Jordan, or actually this question will be for Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer. For Michael, I have a question from a listener named John. It says, do you have any pro tips for top bar, bee, top bar hive maintenance and inspection and harvesting of honey? Uh, the details are I've been keeping bees for four years, and I've had a top bar hive for three of the four years. Compared to Lansdorff hives, they are horrible to work with. I dread going into those hives. Do you have any tips? It pretty much turns into a massacre as I get in and pull the bars out with cross comb. Bees are all over the place and honey running everywhere, and it's just a giant sticky mess. Any tips you have would be great. So, Mr. Jordan, the bee whisperer, what say you when working with top bar beehives? Hey, Big John, with help me on my top bar, it is a massacre to work this system of beekeeping. Well, John, first off, top bar beekeeping is the hardest system of beekeeping. There are many types of top bar hives to use with top bar beekeeping systems. Uh, a few different management styles and a different kinds of hives. Uh, the easiest way is the modified Langstroth, using the Langstroth hive and that system, but putting, found, putting no foundations in the frame and pulling off the bottom bars. This uh, makes the bees build just like top bar beekeeping, but you're using the Langstroth method. Uh, the next one that's most common is the Kenya uh, Long Hive. Uh, it usually has the 30-degree slopes on the side. It carries about 32 uh, top bars on it. Uh, that's probably the next one people use. Then you get into the War A style, which is a little bit harder, stacking the boxes using slide-out frames. And then there's the Perone, which is the large open box with deep comb uh, and a whole upper panel that you have to like use a pulley system to raise and check to make them keep building comb longer. And then there's the Sun Hive uh, with its swinging motion and round uh, hive and odd-shaped frames that you'll use. I'm not sure on the management style you're using. Uh, there's things like uh, Phil Chandler's barefoot beekeeping method or Les uh, Crowder's uh, organic top bar beekeeping method. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure of all that, but I'm going to go right into the meat and potatoes. I'm going to change your management style. Uh, you've had bees now for four years, so you're going to skip the beekeeping for beginners part. I want you to go ahead and get wax foundation. And I want you to cut them so they fit your top bars and the angle of your hive. So if you're using Kenya, I want you to cut it so it has the degree slope, uh, leaving a three-eighths of an inch all the way around the foundation, even from the bottom. So you're going to basically stick a wax foundation on your top bar all the way down so it's three inches from the bottom and from the sides. And go ahead and give them foundation to start off with. Uh, that... Uh, You need to stop the cross comb. And the best way is to teach them. By putting in a frame with wax foundation all the way to the bottom, 
three-eighths off the bottom, and you place that in every other top bar. And this way it will make them build down and not from bar to bar. Uh, this will stop the cross comb. By starting uh, removing every other bar, so you have like seven bars that you've taken out, and adding that long foundation and placing it back every other bar, uh, you can use hot wax to set them in there or melt the foundation a little bit and press it on the bar. Uh, in two weeks, go back and pull out every other bar. Uh, they should have already started building on those foundation combs all the way down in about two weeks. And you can pull the every other bar that has all the cross uh, burr comb on it and uh, cut off all that burr comb. And then place two inches of that foundation hanging from the top bar. So it gives them two inches to build off from and place that back in in every other slot. And you do that with the first 13. So the door entrance, uh, you have a foundation and then no foundation and then foundation and no foundation. And you do that with the first 13, two weeks, pull out the ones that you didn't use the foundation, putting a two-inch strip on them and putting them back. And over about a uh, two-month time period, you'll stop the cross comb, and you've probably already started inserting bars, moving bars down, uh, using your management skills to uh, make them keep building in that line. And that will eliminate the cross comb and get you back to building a natural comb in there. Uh, you, you need to start them off with a lot of feed. Top bar, you need them uh, a lot of feeding. Uh, they need uh, a mixture of about 60-40, 60% sugar, 40% uh, water. So if it's a gallon bucket, it's going to be 60% of that bucket with sugar and 40% of that gallon bucket with water. <laughs> Mix it down, cool it off, and get them a good feed. It'll make them make comb fast. Uh, a tarbot hive will eat three pounds of feed, of this feeding, or this mixture, every day. A good hive will eat three pounds of feed every day. So I'm going to repeat that. A good beehive will eat three pounds of this sugar mixture a day. So if there's no food, there is no comb. And on natural top bar beekeeping, you need the food because they're not doing foundations and stuff as they're going. So this goes with a food forest or any type of food system. You're going to have to make them have that much uh, sugar or nectar production or extra honey for them to start building this comb or they won't make wax. Uh, make sure your brood stays in the first 13 frames and keep checking uh, queen cells so they do not swarm. Take your time. Enjoy them. It will always be work. Uh, when you pull out your frames, it is good to build a stand to hold your frames when you pull them. Uh, that way you can walk around the frame and looking without rolling it or flipping it to do the inspection. Uh, pulling the top bars out, usually hold it at chest level, bringing one end of the bar to your chin and pushing the other part of the bar away, just rolling it up so you can look and then rolling it down. I suggest getting a pole, sticking it in the ground and stepping on it like a T-pole. And on that T-pole, uh, weld two bars off of it so it sits on each side of the top bar. Just pull your frame out, slip it right on there, and look at it. Walk around it. That way you're not flipping the comb and all that stuff. You're, you're, you're not going to weaken the comb by flipping it and stuff. You just lift it up, set it on your bracket, look at it, and put it back down. If you make the brackets long enough, you can stick three or four top bars on it. That way you can expect more than once and open up the hive for cleaning. 
but uh, try to get away from flipping those top bars. Build a, a bracketed stand that you can use to inspect the the, the brood chambers and the comb better uh, without flipping them. That's going to help you a lot. Uh, it'll help from the comb falling out and making it weaker on hot days, man. You know, when you're flipping that stuff, it's going to fall. Uh, another good tip is always use a flower shifter. Take fine powdered sugar and shift it over the bees before you ever close your hive. That makes them check for mites, and it's a little treat for them. And if you have de uh, dehydrated or powdered honey, uh, use that in your shifter and shift it over the bees. Makes them clean themselves, more hygienic. Uh, when you pull out frames, it's a, it's a good thing that to, when you pull them out, if they're all capped honey, just pull them all the way out and cut them. And cut the comb off so there's like two inches sticking down. I always say two inches. It gives them a barrier where they can start building down. And anything that's below the two inches is yours for harvesting. And the two inches will give them, uh, the honey dripping will make them start cleaning that all off and build the comb right away. So you're promoting them right to get back to work and giving them a little bit of feed for them to want to start building the comb. And then if you just take that comb and cut it into... Uh, like four by four squares, you might get about two to maybe even three out of them out of a top bar system. All the extra wax and comb you can mash, feed it to the bees, and then the little four by four squares you put in Tupperware. Measure that out so they're all about the same poundage and sell them raw comb. It sells better and people are seeing a better product than uh, the honey. Uh, people are starting to look at the honey as additives and stuff in it to keep it from glycerizing or it's been heat treated and it's not raw. So top bar beekeeping, you know, if you do that and just package the rock comb, uh, you'll be able to sell it, and it works better. Uh, in the winter, uh, move the brood to the front 15, placing a divider board in it so they can't move to the back of the hive. Uh, most top bar hives have about 32 frames, so you're going to basically cut this hive in half over the first couple years. Uh, keeping it a smaller space for them to keep warm. But remember, when you do this, uh, you'll probably have to feed them over the winter because you're cutting down the space. Uh, building a top bar frame, a sugar board, where you make the frame out of a top bar and then pouring a, a fondant cake or a sugar mixture that hardens inside that frame. And then when it hardens, you tilt the frame up, placing it in the hive right before the divider board. This will give them extra feed over the winter. Remember, feed, feed, feed them. Uh, over the next three years, you can develop a system of how much feed you need to give them and how much they're really using. Uh, that's part of the management skills. And you may not put a divider board in. Uh, you might have a long system of DARTH, and you might just wrap the whole hive in a couple sleeping bags, So, and hopefully they fill the whole hive up with feed. Uh, it's about, oh, man, you need, you need about uh, 30 to uh, 50 pounds of sugar for them to winterize over. Uh, it's about 10 pounds of sugar that you feed them for every month of Darth. So if you have five months of Darth, October, November, December, January, and February, and you're moving into March, that's five months of, of Darth with 10 pounds. You're looking at 50 pounds of, of feed or extra honey. In Langstroth, that's about three deep boxes for them to make it over the winter. So on top bar, if you've got about that long period of Darth where there's no nectar or anything of flow, you will have to feed them no matter what, and you might need all the space and warmth. 
Uh, I'm not sure the style you're using, the type of top bar you're using, or things like that. Those all have to be considerations. I hope these little tips uh, help you get started, John. Uh, top bar is hard, but it makes great products. If you just cut the comb out, comb out and put it in Tupperware, uh, you will be able to see your measurements per poundage and sell it that way. Um, you will, if you have any extra honey, you can use that for bee feed. Hey, man, if you have any other questions, please send them in. I plan on having our BDC course out by the end of August so we can cover more topics for you. Uh, John, don't give up. Uh, good luck. And if you want any more information on uh, urban beekeeping or anything beekeeping or urban homesteading, like downtown, how to do this stuff, catch me on Facebook. We're always posting uh, lots of ideas and a lot of work that we do on that Facebook page. And I answer a lot of questions that if you send them to me, I, I'll help you out. That, that way you can get me pictures if you need to. Hopefully this has helped you out, John. And remember, it's, it's not a massacre. I understand that you're pulling the frames out and the cross stuff's uh, dripping and it's just becoming a huge sticky mess. Uh, so let's get the management better and let's get them start off to where they know what they're doing. And then let's feed them and let's get on a good management skill so that it's more enjoyable. Hey, this has been Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer, on Top Bar Beekeeping Tips. Hey, Jack. Jim in Ohio with a question for either you or Chef Keith Snow. Uh, pretty simple. Got a couple of old chickens that got to go uh, and want to know what the best way and simplest way to take care of those are as far as cooking. A uh, little background, uh, not a big cook, uh, either, uh, neither my wife uh, nor I, and just wanted to know what the best way to, best and simplest way to take care of those are as far as uh, being pleasing to the palate. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate the show. Appreciate everything you do. Well, I'm no Chef Keith Snow, but since I have a totally different question for Chef Keith this week, and since I probably have more experience dealing with old chickens than Chef Keith does, though he has a lot more experience dealing with chicken in general than I do, I'll, I'll take this one. I'm going to actually refer you to an episode that I did in the past, and I'll put a link into it today, episode 1397 on Raising Chickens, and I have uh, some stuff in there on cooking cold chickens that I won't completely rehash here uh, for the sake of brevity, but I will go over quickly what they are. Uh, first and foremost, I think if you're culling a bird that's an egg layer, it, it's, it's almost worthless to pluck that bird. I know people want to use every speck of the bird, and if you want to pluck it, God bless you, go ahead and do it. And at that point, it's a great stewing chicken, um, it's a terrible roasting chicken, generally. So it's something you want to put in a crock pot, uh, just enough moisture in there with it to, to keep it from scorching to the bottom, uh, celery, carrot, and onions, and, and, and slow roast it, and then you can turn that into a soup, you can turn that into a stew, you can just eat it that way, it'll work out okay for you, and that skin will help, not need a lot of other things going on in there with it. Um, if you want to make chicken soup, or anything in a crock pot with a chicken, I'm going to advise you the following. Do not 
cover it with liquid initially unless you're going to either partially roast it or saute it or brown it or something. If you just take raw chicken, stick it in the water, put it in a crock pot and turn it on, the texture of the meat comes out pretty dry for sitting in moisture the entire time. And it comes kind of crumbly, especially the white meat. It's not really, it doesn't work out as well. It's, it's, it's much better roasted. But here's my favorite things to do with cold chickens. Number one, when I slaughter them, I take a knife and I go down the breastbone and I skin the breast and I cut the two breast cutlets out and then I pull the skin around the hips and I pull the legs out. I cut the, 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 the leg where, the, where it joins the foot so that it separates from the foot. I cut the, the thigh off of the chicken. I pull out a thigh and leg skinless quarter on both sides and a breast fillet on both sides. Um, I go in, I get the heart and the liver and the gizzard out if I feel like it, depending on how many I'm doing. If it's one, I probably won't bother. I take the rest of it. I take the whole carcass. I throw it in a hefty garbage bag. I spin it up and I throw it in my deep freezer. On Thursday morning, I take it and throw it in my dumpster and I, I give it out to the garbage guy. That's, that's what I do. I know that that sounds bad, but I'm de- and I don't even do chickens anymore, so this doesn't even apply anymore, but I've determined that egg-laying chickens are not worth the headache and the effort to try to get every piece of meat off them because they're not the best meat chickens in the first place. So what I end up with is two leg quarters and two breast cutlets. One of my favorite ways to make that is in a crock pot, and it's a recipe called Coke Avin. I am not going to read the recipe to you. I'm going to have a link in today's show notes to it, but I'll give you some of the basic stuffs in it. Four ounces of bacon or pancetta. Um, about three to four pounds of chicken cut into uh, sections, some salt and pepper, carrots, uh, some onions, some garlic, cognac brandy or red wine. You can use any of them. And uh, the recipe I'm going to give you calls for cognac or brandy. It's not necessary. Vin is wine, so coca vin is, is to cook with wine is what this recipe actually is. Um, and, and they actually call for red wine and brandy, brandy or co- cognac. You can do both. You can do one. Either one's fine. A cup of chicken stock, ten uh, some 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 thyme sprigs, some unsalted butter, some flour, and some small whole onions. You can do that if you want to. I omit those. And they call for cremony mushrooms. I usually use shiitakes. Any good mushroom will work for this. Um, the big thing. And you can do this in a crock pot or you can do it in a Dutch oven, which is the way this recipe calls for it, is to make sure that you brown the chicken before you slow cook it. If you're going to do it in a crock pot, follow this recipe, put it into a, a cast iron skillet or something, and, and give it a browning before you slow cook it. That will get you a much better flavor, a much better result. Kogavin is probably the, the most noble way you can put your, your, your cold chickens to use. Because it's so sophisticated for something that otherwise is tough and chewy and not really that spectacular. So, so give that a try. And if you want to try Kokovin and you want to just get some good quality chicken uh, from a store or a local producer or whatever and do it, don't think this is only for crappy chicken. You can use really high quality chicken in this too and you won't feel bad about it. Chicken soup, that's that, that, how to do that is in there. I do a shredded Tex-Mex chicken that Dorothy came up with. And this is so simple. And it's basically you take your chicken, you brown it, you throw it in a crock pot. On top of your brown chicken, you dump for about two to three pounds of chicken. And as you go up, you just add more. You dump a jar of your favorite salsa on there. Um, and you, you mix in a packet of taco seasoning. You slow cook it till it's, it's, it's very tender. 
You take the chicken out, you shred it with forks, you put it back in and mix it up. You put that on tacos or in burritos or enchiladas, and it's awesome. Uh, chicken stir-fry. If you're going to try to do any kind of uh, regular cooking with, with cold chickens, this is a great one. The key is the cut, to cut the, the, the meat across the grain in thin, long slices, and then make a stir-fry. You can do that with both the white and the dark meat, so it's just like a Chinese stir-fry. That works great. And always take your bones you know, that you have left over, throw them in the oven, roast them till they're brown, put them in a stock pot or a slow cooker and make a bone broth out of them. Including all these other things I've said to do. If you end up cutting all the meat off the bone and do a stir fry, do that with the bones. If you make coke oven or whatever, then the bones are pretty much ready to go. You can take the bones. If you make chicken soup, you've already done this. But all these other things like the chicken soup and all, take the bones, celery, carrots, onions, put them in a slow cooker for a day. And cook them till the bones are soft, where you can pull the bones out and just crumble them in your hands. Strain that off. You'll have some of the best quality bone stock you've ever made. And these are great ways to use up those cold chickens and, and be respectful to the animal. And again, my method of cleaning them, if you have a plucker and all and whatever, you can do that. But I just, I can't justify the time any longer to pluck a chicken that's going to give me a three and a half pound carcass that I'm going to have slow cooking anyway. It just doesn't make sense to me. And it's another reason I've gone to ducks is, is my, my mainstay for poultry. But those are the ways I've used my coals up over the years, and they've worked out really well for me. Uh, at this point, let's take a question for, of all people, expert council member, Chef Keith Snow. I have a, a listener's question for Chef Keith Snow. Chris from Northwest Georgia has this question for you. He's looking for ideas and recipes for asparagus. He's never tried it until recently, and he ordered it at a restaurant. Since then, he cooks it at least twice per week. When he prepares it, he either roasts it in the oven with olive oil, salt, and shredded Parmesan cheese, or saute it with garlic and herb uh, compound butter. Both methods are really good, but I'm looking for other ways of cooking asparagus. So, Chef Keith, what do we do with all that wonderful asparagus? And remember, guys, you know, with this, asparagus is a perennial. You plant it once in your garden, you get it established, and you harvest it every year. Chef Keith, what do we do with it all? Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. I wanted to answer Chris from Georgia's question about eating asparagus. Well, right now it is springtime in 2015, certainly asparagus season in most parts of the United States. And I suggest eating asparagus when they're in season, uh, purchase locally if possible. You definitely don't want to be eating these things in December when they're flown in from Peru because they're not really that fresh, and I definitely like to support U.S. farmers. So buy local whenever you can. That's the first bit of advice. The next thing, um, when you're selecting asparagus, Chris, you want to look and make sure that when you pick up the bottoms, if they're really dried out on the bottom, that's not a good sign. Also, look at the very top, the top two inches, the flower part up there, the, the really incredible part. If that's not super tight, if it's starting to look ragged and open up a bit, you don't want those either because they're not fresh. So once you've selected the right kind, and don't worry about the thickness because there's um, thin asparagus, there's thick ones, they're, they're all good. You just want to make sure they're fresh. So let's now talk about preparing them. First things first, I usually will cut off about the last inch, the part that was growing up out of the ground, that part, I'll cut that off. It's usually pretty darn fibrous and woody. So you cut off that last inch, save it for your compost pile. If you've got pigs, whatever, they love that kind of thing. And then you want to go from the top where that beautiful 
tip is and you want to go down about two inches, cut it there. Now you set aside the, the top part and then that middle part is great for many applications, including stir fries. It's great on top of pizza with goat cheese and extra virgin olive oil. Wonderful. You can use it in soups and I'm going to refer to a soup in a little bit. So do not throw that part out. What I suggest is if you like asparagus and you're going to eat it a lot from now until it's out of season, save those middle parts and put them in a zip bag. You can freeze them or put them in the refrigerator, whatever. And then maybe once a week, you can make a beautiful batch of um, cream of asparagus soup. Now, I just posted a video in the blog section at Harvest Eating. Go to harvesteating.com, left side. There'll be a little link there for blog. Click that. You'll see a post about asparagus, Chris. I'm putting in there a video that comes from the Harvest Eating television show. It aired nationally in 2012, and that particular episode on asparagus was one of the one of the shows. And uh, we feature a lady from Asheville, North Carolina, terrific local farmer and CSA owner, and she specializes in purple asparagus. But in that um, TV episode, there's three incredible recipes. One of them is a sesame ginger flank steak with asparagus that's stir-fried. And the combination of that toasted sesame oil, some soy sauce and ginger with beautiful sliced thin um, flank steak and then with those beautiful asparagus spears tossed in there at the end, it is delicious. That recipe's in there. Also, a cream of asparagus soup is in there with a herbed crouton and then a grilled asparagus with a lemon chive vinaigrette. And those are all um, fairly easy recipes and they're terrific ways to enjoy asparagus. Now, let me talk about harvesting the tips of the asparagus. You've got those off. Now, you want to cook those the proper way. And then once you've got them cooked, you can use them in many different applications like I'll mention in a minute. So take a pot and fill it with water and not two cups of water, about a half a gallon of water, and that's a lot of water, and you bring that water up to a vigorous boil. Then you're going to take a half a cup, and that's a lot, a half a cup of kosher salt. You dump that in and mix it in there. And people, you guys are thinking, what, a half a cup of salt? You need that water to be salty like the ocean, really salty. So you've got a big pot of salty water. Then, before you put those asparagus tips into that water, get a bowl on your counter, fill it with cold water, and then a bunch of ice from your freezer. So you've got a big ice water, what they call an ice water bath. Now, I suggest using a, a portable strainer, something you can reach into the boil, boiling water and get the asparagus out. Uh, or if you just want to dump the water right into the sink and, and uh, dump them into a, a sieve, that's cool too. But the point is, you don't cook them for more than about a minute and 20 seconds in the water. And then when you take them out, they have to go from the boiling water immediately to the ice bath. And that's called shocking them. And what you'll see is you'll see a brilliant deep green color in the asparagus tips, and they'll also retain firmness, a little bit of crunch, and that is just the way you want them because you're going to put them in other dishes that are going to cook them a little further. So if you put them in there for seven minutes, they're just going to be trash. So be very diligent, set up a timer, learn how to properly blanch in heavily salted water, and then shock in ice water. Trust me, the results will be well worth it. Once you have those, and that's totally the antithesis of the way most people eat asparagus. They put it in boiling, probably unsalted water, and they cook it for 
you know, 20 minutes. They take it out. It's that gray, green, limp and stringy. I mean, that is not asparagus when you do that to it. That's pig food. So you've got the spears cooked properly. Now let's make something called frittata. This is a, a very rustic country style open faced omelet. You'll see it all over Italy and certainly in Spain as well. In this case, farm fresh eggs are whipped, put into your best non-stick skillet or cast iron skillet with a bit of butter in it. Once those eggs set, you want to take your asparagus spears that have been shocked and drained and sprinkle those on top of the eggs with another sprinkling of beautiful grated Gruyere cheese, some salt and pepper. It goes from the stovetop and the whole, um, uh, what do you call it, the skillet, and it's got to be oven safe, goes into a 325-degree oven. Most skillets are oven safe. Most of them have handles made of silicone. So it goes into oven about six minutes. You take it out, and that is a gorgeous thing. I would put some freshly snipped chives on top of it. Perfect lunch or dinner. Not something you'd serve for breakfast. So that's great. Also, what I love to do is make omelets with jumbo lump crab meat, asparagus spears, and a little bit of white cheddar cheese. Now, the combination of lump, I'm talking jumbo lump, a big, those big chunks of crab meat, not that stuff you get near the tuna fish in the store. That's, that's trash. You're talking about jumbo lump, the good stuff. With asparagus spears inside of an omelet, there's something about it. It is a wonderful combination. Um, also, think about using those asparagus tips that you've properly cooked and blanched in risotto. Is another classic Italian peasant food dish. It's basically a wide-grain rice. It comes from the Po River Valley, and it's cooked with slowly added additions of stock, and you stir it and stir it and stir it, and it gets beautiful and creamy. It's a wonderful thing. It takes about 25 minutes, and towards the end, you take a couple cups of your reserved, properly blanched, um, shocked and drained spears. You toss them in there for about another minute to warm them through. A knob of butter, some grated Romano cheese, maybe some fresh basil, a little drizzle of extra virgin olive oil, and you are in heaven, asparagus risotto heaven. And that, my friends, is just a few ways to use this wonderful spring vegetable. Um, do visit harvesteating.com and check out that TV show. I'll be posting some of these recipes on the blog, so um, visit the website for that. And I wanted to mention to all of you spice fans out there, I just released my Carolina Competition Barbecue Rub. It's totally different from the old one, and it is awesome. I've been um, testing with it while I was formulating it. It's really good. Not only is it great on slow-cooked barbecue, but also steak. And the last thing I'll throw out there is um, those of you that have tried my pasta sauces, the Thoughtful Harvest Pasta Sauce, everything in that sauce is sourced in the United States. Um, right sitting next to the kettle while it's being produced. It's a beautiful sauce. Jack has tried them before. Um, those are going to be produced here in May and shipped to the Amazon warehouse. That will be the place to get them. You can order them from Amazon. They'll ship right to your house. And I'm going to offer you guys and gals out there a special coupon code. So email me, Keith at HarvestEating.com with the subject line, you know, I want to try the pasta sauce or something like that. And I will send you a um, code to enter into Amazon. And most of you can get free shipping if you're an Amazon Prime member. But I would really appreciate everybody's support in my relaunch of the pasta sauces on Amazon. So uh, do email me for that. And also, Jack, thanks so much for what you do, keeping this show available for everybody. And I hope you all have a terrific weekend. Keith Snow signing out. Hey, Jack. This is Noah Darko calling from the back 40 of the Upper Rockies with a duck question. 
I'm wondering whether there's any compelling reason to keep a drake with a flock of laying ducks if you're never planning to hatch any of the eggs. We recently ordered some of the Metzer Golden 300 hybrid layers, and because they're hybrids, we don't necessarily ever plan to breed them. However, we've noticed that our rooster serves a very useful purpose as a bodyguard and watchdog for his girls. So I'm wondering if there's any uh, similar reason why we might want to keep some drakes and feed them in the meantime. On a side note, uh, I have here Story's Guide to Raising Ducks by Dave Holderreed, and on page 108, he discusses uh, crossing khaki Campbell drakes with various other breeds of ducks to produce super super productive layers. So obviously, with a little resourcefulness and pre-planning, it's possible to create your own hybrids at home. Anyway, thanks for the show. Okay, there's quite a few different things going on there. So first of all, let's start off with an assumption that's been made here that since the the Golden 300 layer hybrid uh, birds from Metzer are hybrids, that uh, breeding them and producing a second generation will result in something not quite as good. The reality is the genetics in that line are very good. Very, very, very good. And if you breed a golden drake to a golden uh, duck, the, the resulting offspring may not look exactly the same, but their, their overall size, their mannerisms, their attitudes, and their productivity remains constant for multiple generations. The same with the white hybrid layers. About the only thing that you lose when you start breeding those lines is the sex link ability of the ducklings. If you know exactly what to look for, it's not as obvious with like uh, sex link pullet chickens. But when you look at your two baby ducklings, you can actually go male, female, male, female without turning them up and checking out the undercarriage, so to speak, which is complicated with, with small little birds. Uh, you really have to know what you're doing to be able to sex birds that way. That's why straight runs to sell for so much less. Um, though there are people that can do it like in a flash. When you when you breed a second generation, an F2 generation of those hybrids, they, you can't do that anymore just by looking at them. So my point is, if you wanted to do some self-replication in your flock, and you did want to harvest some, or actually, as you culled, have some of your own birds to replace them, there would be nothing wrong, and you wouldn't lose really anything as a homesteader or small producer by doing that. Next, on the question itself, is there any advantage to having drakes in your flock the way there is to having a rooster in your flock with chickens? I would say if there is, it's far less. Drakes want to breed all the time, and ducks don't necessarily want to. And I think that if you had a flock of, let's say, a dozen and one or two drakes, it would be less of an issue than if you had a similar you know, number of ducks and drakes, like a balanced flock. I don't... I think the, 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 the ducks feel a lot more harassed by the drakes at that point. So if I was going to do this in a small flock, I would keep my drake numbers down. And uh, I would definitely recommend that. The reason people don't do it is they don't have, the one thing they don't do is the drakes don't fight anywhere near the level that they do is, let's say, roosters. Now, Muscovy drakes seem to, to get and kind of butt heads a little bit here and there. Uh, take it a little bit seriously too at times, but the the, the other ducks they they all run around together hanging out and they harass the the females uh, together. So keep the number down. Is there any value? Part of me says no. 
in my observations with my flocks. But I do have to say that I have observed that drakes seem to spend a little bit more time with one eye toward the sky looking for avian predators. Uh, and they, they, they seem to be a little bit more worried about that. But they do not defend the girls the way a rooster does. They, they do not charge out to their defense. They, they just don't. They don't do anything like a rooster does with a fine food and give it up for the female. First duck to it eats it. Um, they don't have anywhere near the value. So it, it's not that it's valueless, but it's, it's much less of a value. Um, so I, I would really say it's probably not enough to, to do it unless you really want reproduction. Because you are feeding a non-productive entity. Okay? A, a drake eats the same amount of food, roughly, that a duck does every day, and he doesn't give you nothing back for it. And he does not protect the flock. What he does is breed a lot, run around, act like a clown, and consume resources. So if I was doing 10 and wanted a drake just for a, you know, having that personality in the flock, that would be fine. I wouldn't mind feeding one. But if you have uh, 10 ducks and 10 drakes, that's not good. Um, if you do want to reproduce, again, don't let the hybrid thing throw you there. As far as the final comment about the khaki Campbells being crossed with other breeds to make productive ducks, that's what the Goldens are. There is no doubt when you look at a golden layer hybrid from Metzer Farms that there is khaki Campbell in that lineage. And I would say that means there's also Rowan in that lineage because the Rowan and the khaki are closely related. It's a downsized Rowan with more productivity. What else goes in there, I don't know. And how they get the daggone thing to turn white, I don't know. Uh, but they are some of the best ducks that I own. I'm looking at about a dozen of them waddling around right now. As always, they make me smile. Uh, if you guys want to know more about what I do with ducks, take, check out duckchronicles.com. It'll lead you to my YouTube playlist. Uh, with that, let's take another one. Hello, Jack. This is Brent from the Thumb of Michigan. I have a question about raising ducks. I heard your podcast with the gentleman from 50 Ducks in a Hot Tub and how, and I live in Michigan, of course, and it gets pretty cold in the winter here. My question was, if I keep a pond aerated, will that be enough, so it don't freeze, will that be enough that they can keep their feathers clean and still be able to enjoy it during the wintertime and then get out of it when they want and not have to worry so much about them getting too cold out here. Our last couple of winters have been brutal here. Um, thanks for your time, and enjoy the show. Bye. Well, the answer is a very simple yes with a, a, a little bit of a complicated maybe. A um, couple things. One, if you get glazed over ice, ducks don't do well on that. I saw that this year where we got an ice coating on top of snow. They have a hard time getting around. So as long as there's some means of traction for them to get down there. Snow that, that, that's crunchy and all, they can get around pretty well. And if it's got depressions and dips in it, they can get around in it when it's glazed over. So you have to make sure there's an access path down to the water. You also need to make sure that there's a way for them to get out. Um, I've had a couple ducks when the, everything was iced over, but the swales were melted in some spots. They got in the swales, and I had to go get a pole and push them out because they had trouble getting out. They couldn't get traction. Ducks can drown. So as long as they can get in and out, that's fine. The next thing is, will what you're going to do allow the pond to actually stay available? Will it actually, you know, will it be enough and sufficient to keep water there? If it is, they'll be fine. They don't need that much. They don't need that much. Depending on how many ducks you have, it could be a much simpler thing. A uh, a 50 gallon uh, rubber made style, the big plastic heavy duty stock tanks, low profile one uh, with a stock tank heater, 250 watt heater in it. 
Uh, or maybe you go to, with your climate, maybe go to the 500-watt heater. It's a floating heater. It comes on when the temperature gets down to, uh, to 35, and it goes off at 45, I believe is how it works. Um, it floats in there. It's worked great for me, a little 250-watt heater. I've had temperatures down to 15 degrees, and it's kept the water defrosted enough. They'll go in there. They'll bounce around. They, they all really need to get their heads wet and then be able to get some water to do their thing with. And when everything's frozen, they stay pretty clean. So they don't need to do as much preening and bathing and stuff like that. And they only really need to get in water like once or twice a week as long as they have a place to get their head wet. So if you create a, a watering system like I've done with a pipe and the holes where they can stick their heads and get their heads wet and their beaks cleaned out in that in, in their, their holding area, so to speak, and you keep that defrosted and you give them you know a, a stock tank a couple times a week to get in and bathe, You're going to be fine. That only works if you have, you know, a dozen ducks or less, though. If you have a couple hundred ducks, they're going to need access to that water. Now, if you have a couple hundred ducks or even 50, 60 ducks and you keep that water broken up with an aerator, they'll do a lot of it themselves for you. They'll go down there and they'll melt patches of snow. They'll melt patches of ice with their body heat and, and they'll be just fine. Um, so without knowing more about where they're going to live, what the path is to get there, How well the aeration is going to work? Are you going to like put an aerator out in the middle of a pond and there's an open hole in the middle of a pond with an ice sheet around it? That's not going to, that's not going to cut it. You're going to have ducks drowning that you're not going to be able to get out to and rescue. This needs to be at the edge of a pond so they can come down with a sloping bank and get out safely. And you may need to do some things to put some traction there for them, throw some you know, cinders down or gravel down or sand down in the snow when it's, when it's, when it's really iced over for them. Uh, it might be a little bit of work. I'd watch Matt's uh, channel, 50 Ducks in a Hot Tub. He knows a hell of a lot more about dealing with those harsh winters than I do. I moved to Texas for a reason. I got tired of shoveling snow a long time ago, and I don't want to do it anymore. Uh, let's take now one for um, Stephen Harris. And this time, instead of me reading it, I actually have a call from a, a, a former caller uh, that had called in under the old system to ask a question. I'm going to play his question and Stephen's answer. I'm going to ask you guys to do me a favor, though, in the future. I want to phase out the calls for the expert panel members. Um, it actually makes the system, it doesn't seem, it seems like, well, what's the big deal? It's, it, it adds a lot of effort when you're trying to put in six, eight, ten expert council members. So if you can email me your question in text, uh, it'll work better in the future. Steve's cleaning up his archives a bit here with some questions that he's got a backlog on. So I'll go ahead and play the uh, caller's question and then Steve's answer immediately after it. Hi, Jack. This is David up in Minneapolis. I've got an expert panel question for Stephen Harris. The question is, what fuel should I put in a Zippo lighter? The details. I carry a Zippo as part of my normal EDC. I've seen some people online claiming that they can be filled with many different fuels. Most notably would be naphtha, which is actually the base of Zippo fluid. So my question is, what's the best and cheapest way to keep filling my Zippo lighter for a lifetime? Thanks so much. Take care. Bye. David in Minneapolis, this is Steve Harris with the expert panel calling in to answer your question. To answer your question, the easy answer is Coleman fuel, or what is called Coleman white gas. Note, this is not gasoline. White gas is not gasoline. Don't use gasoline in your Zippo. Use Coleman fuel, or it's also commonly called white gas, but it's sold by Coleman, and it's on the shelf of Walmart. You can get it in quarts or in gallons. This works very well in Zippo lighters. GIs used it in World War II 
for their Zippo lighters because they had a lot of Coleman fuel around because this is what the Army used to light their tents and their command centers. They didn't have generators everywhere running electric lights. They used Coleman lanterns. And they did not have disposable lighters back then in the 1940s, so they had to use Zippo lighters. Now, some stuff you would have read about. Barbecue charcoal lighter fluid. This used to work in the past. It does not work anymore. It's now less flammable to make it safer, and it will not work in a Zippo. How do I know this? Because I went and bought two Zippos, bought Coleman fuel, bought barbecue fluid, and tried everything out myself before I brought this information to you here on TSP. I don't just go and Google Google stuff and make an answer for you. I do it myself each and every time for you guys. So, it's a good question, but I didn't want to stop here. I wanted to expand the question to... How much Coleman fuel and zipper and Zippo flints and Zippo wicks would I need if I wanted to start a fire three times a day for five years? As in if you had one of my super efficient rocket stoves for cooking at rocketstove1234.com and you had to start a fire three times a day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. This is for you ultra preppers out there. Yes, I think about you guys when I'm doing answer. Answers. Zippo says that with daily use, their flints will last about two weeks. Other information says that they last longer. But if this was true, you would need 22 packets of Zippo flints with six flints in each packet to last five years. At a buck seventy per six pack of flints, this is about forty bucks in flints. How much Coleman fuel would you need? Well, this is a stickier point. How much fuel for five years? Because the fuel evaporates from the lighter faster than you actually use it. It needs fuel every few weeks if unused. So before I got out my microgram scales and started to measure how rapidly fuel is burned in a Zippo and measure how fast it evaporates, I did some more research to see if there was a better answer than the Zippo lighter. And believe me or not, for you guys, I would have gotten out the microgram scale and measured all this stuff, but I was looking for a better answer because all this became moot because the better answer is hard numbers right from the BIC Corporation, the manufacturers of the BIC lighter. One BIC lighter will last at least 3,000 flint strikes, and they light on the first strike all the time unless they're wet. One full-size Bic lighter will burn for 60 minutes. That's one hour of butane fuel in each Bic lighter. If you had your fire ready to go as if you're going to use a flint only to make a spark and light your tinder, but instead you're going to use a Bic lighter to light it, so you would only take having the Bic lighter on for one second to start your fire, then 3,000 strikes for one second would be 50 minutes of fuel, and it has 60 minutes of fuel in it, so the math works out. So if you had to start three fires a day for five years, and you were going to use a Bic lighter for one second each time to start the fire, how many Bic lighters would a woodchuck chuck? I mean, how many Bic lighters would, a, would you need? The answer is two. 
Yeah, that's it, guys. Two Bic lighters would last you five years. Most people would lose the lighter long before this happens, so you want a bunch of Bic lighters, and I have them in bulk from Bic, listed on prep1234.com, about halfway down the page. Now, did you think I was going to sit here and flick my Bic for 3,000 times to see if it really did last that long? Well, no, sorry, I love you guys, but this week it was a little busy and I didn't have time for that. If you do a search for the website Instructables, you find Instructables from people on how to take a used flint from a Bic lighter and use it in a Zippo lighter. The flint in the Bic lighter is so long, you got to cut it in half to use it in the Zippo. So I really, really believe the Bic will last for 3,000 strikes. So if you need two of them for five years to light a fire three times a day, then I think if you buy one or two dozen, you'll be covered for the for the Bics that you lose over the course of five years using your preps. Who's got five years of preps? Someone like Jack with an active food forest and a garden plus 50 ducks laying eggs and reproducing, you know, for meat as well as eggs. His food plus with his food storage may very well have five years of food and water and he now needs fire. Jack can very easily have five years of food. Rocket stoves are a very, very efficient way of cooking. You can cook a meal on sticks and not logs. So having five years of food is very doable when you take Jack's permaculture route and you use something like a rocket stove for cooking on. Now, more information for you on the Bix real quickly. A friend of mine is an ex-Navy SEAL, and I asked him what Navy SEALs carried to start fires in case of an emergency and because their mission went sideways. His answer was a Bic lighter. Why, I asked? Because they worked the first time every time, he says. They carried them on their body when they were even between 30 and 100 feet under the water. How did they keep them waterproof? They'd vacuum seal them. Same vacuum sealer you use to vacuum seal food with, the Navy SEALs would use to vacuum seal a Bic lighter so it was 100% waterproof at any depth. Navy SEALs don't go around on missions starting campfires at night, so the Bic was for only in case of emergency, so they just cut open the seal, pull out the lighter, and use it. So that's the story and how I would fuel a Zippo lighter, and how I would start a fire three times a day for five years. Also, at this moment in 2015, Coleman fuels about 12.50 a gallon at Walmart. One lady told me she had it for eight bucks a gallon at her Walmart. When oil was 140 dollars a barrel, it got to as high as 20 dollars a gallon at Walmart. At 12 dollars per gallon for Coleman fuel, it's just about 10 times cheaper. Then buying Zippo lighter fluid and a 12-ounce can to refill your Zippo. Also, to refill your Zippo from a one-gallon can of Coleman fuel is a bit hard. So I have a three-pack of glass eyedroppers for about two bucks on prep1234.com, underneath the Zippo stuff, halfway down. For So all of you can... Use Coleman, well what you do is you take the Coleman fuel, you pour it into a cup, then you use the eyedropper to pull the fuel out of the cup and put it into the Zippo. You do it a few times, and then you pour the remainder back of the, of the Coleman fuel back into the one gallon can. 
That's it, guys. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel, reminding you that everything I have done with Jack, plus true stories and even more, and links to all of my 1234 websites are at Stephen1234.com. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week. Hi, Jack. We are wondering what's the best organic-type method for getting rid of tomato hornworms and fruitworms is. Last last year, we had a bunch of tomatoes in our beds, and this year, turning the soil over, getting ready for our new crop, we found tons and tons of pupae. They're really, really disgusting, and given the number of them, we're really concerned that we're going to have problems with the tomatoes this year. So any advice you might have would be greatly appreciated as we are hoping to have a good tomato crop this year. All right. Thank you very much. We appreciate you. Bye. The the best method to control them at this point would be if you had chickens to before you plant your uh, your tomatoes this year. Uh, throw a piece of electronet around that area and throw your chickens in there for a couple days. And they will go through there and turn all of those nasty pupating uh, tomato hornworms, which is actually a tobacco worm is what it really is, because tomatoes and tobacco and potatoes are all part of the same group. Uh, and it will turn them into wonderful meat and eggs. And, and that would give you a good knockdown of the current population that's sitting right there ready to come up and, and do, its, do its thing in your, in your uh, garden. The next thing is, and this is hard for a lot of people to believe, but tomato hornworms usually don't devastate really well-fed, nutrient-dense tomato vines. They, they generally do their biggest damage to weak tomato vines. Um, and they can devastate a, a vine that's six foot tall and looks pretty good down to nothing if it's nutrient deficient. So good quality compost, good organic fertilizer, and good fungal activity. Um, one of the things that I've seen that really makes gardens more resilient to pests is get yourself a five-pound block of Kingstrophoria mushroom spawn every year. Get yourself a kiddie pool. Fill the kiddie pool up with wood chips. And fill the kiddie pool up with water so they're completely soaked. Let them soak for about two weeks. Dump the excess water out so the chips are just damp. And mix in that, that five pounds of Strophoria spawn. And then mulch with regular wood mulch like you normally would. And mix in that all that wonderful inoculated wood mulch and get the fungal activity up. That, is, that has been better than any of the mycorrhizal fungi or anything that I've found in gardens since I discovered that. And uh, a five-pound block of that spawn is not much money. You can get it from uh, Mushroom Mountain is one place you can get that. Uh, next up, the other thing would be uh, uh, the parasitic wasp uh, known as bracketed, uh, bracketed wasps. And if you ever see a tornado hornworm with a whole bunch of little white things on its back, it looks like almost like little pieces of rice sticking out of them. Never kill that one. Uh, those are bracketed. And what they do is they sting eggs into that little uh, that worm. And it's a tiny little wasp that will not bother you. And then those eggs, you know, grow up like that pupate and hatch and just destroy him and eat him and kill him. A very miserable death for a tobacco hornworm. And uh, then a, a big population boost in new bracketed wasps. So watch for those and do things to attract them. And probably the best plant that you can put in to attract them long-term is parsley. Now, it won't flower till its second year, but it's covered in little flowers, and the bracketed wasps love them. So start establishing uh, parsley in your system uh, thickly, 
uh, in borders and gardens and everywhere, just parsley, parsley, buy a pound of parsley seed. And, and, and sow a small amount of it every week for the entire year until it takes. Uh, and then encourage it to be around. And plant as many other small flowering plants as you can to bring in those wasps. Unfortunately, I've never been able to find bracketed wasps where you can buy them as a beneficial insect. And they're the best control. You can get um, a wasp species called... Uh, trichogramma wasps, and they do exercise some control, and they're a pretty good creature to have around, but they're probably not going to control something as large as a tornado, tornado, tomato hornworm. They more will hone in on your other uh, caterpillar pests, like uh, uh, the ones that eat your, your broccoli and cabbage and things like that, and a lot of other little uh, worms. But they're, they're not generally the, the best for the tomato hornworms. I just don't think they're big enough to have a, a, a big effect on those. But trichogramma wasps you can purchase uh, and, and set out to to to, uh, to hatch, and they are a good uh, addition to your garden. I think if you wanted to buy a, a pest control mechanism that might be effective, and it's probably too late this year for it, but beneficial parasitic nematodes that live in the soil uh, would certainly parasite those pupas before they ever got out. If you increase your soil biology, they're going to be there naturally, but you could boost them with that. Uh, I really recommend as, a, as an overall pest control method is a foliar feed of Garrett juice. Uh, Garrett juice is available commercially, or you can go to the Dirt Doctor's website, dirtdoctor.com, and get the recipe to make it yourself. Uh, spraying that or, or misting that or even using a watering can to, uh, to put that on your tomatoes about once every two weeks through the growing season will not only result in really great uh, high-quality plants with a lot of nutrient uptake from the foliar feed, it will have some pest suppression. So those are the best things that I can advise you to do. But again, if you get if you get a chickens in there, if you have chickens and you put them in there for like a week before you plant your tomatoes, you are not going to have at least those particular ones coming up out of the soil and bugging your plants. Because they will tear the place up, and it will be in a great state for you to plant. But the the big control again is the bracknid wasps, and you just can't because they, they only really reproduce using those worms. So you need to attract them, and you uh, you need to not wipe out your worms. You need to kill as many of them as you can. You probably won't wipe them out anyway. Um, and I've taken to killing them this way when I see them. I have a really sharp knife I wear around my neck, made by Patrick Rorman. And when I see a tomato hornworm, I don't even pull him off the plant. I just cut him in half. I don't even really cut him in half. I put a big cut through his back and leave him there to uh, to become part of the ecosystem. Uh, those That's the best advice I can give with that. Let's take a, a, another question for an expert panel member. This question is for uh, Council Member Ben Falk from Whole Systems Design. My question for for you, Ben, is that you've you've mentioned several times in questions recently that one of your go tos uh, for uh, your winter uh, subsistence is elderberry, and I'd like to hear more about what you do with elderberry, how you harvest it, and how you use it as a uh, as a food and medicine on your uh, your farmstead in uh, New Hampshire. Uh, actually, Vermont. Uh, so with that, man, uh, what, what say you about your use of the great plant known as elderberry? Hey there, Ben Falk with the Expert Council, Whole Systems Design. The way we use uh, elderberry um, pretty much 100% of the time is to um, boil it down and simmer it. you got to heat elderberry, or actually it can um, 
be toxic. Um, the seed uh, apparently can be toxic. And so we simmer it down and just follow a really old school recipe of um, turning it into syrup, which is sterile canned usually, um, just like you'd can anything else. Um, and we add honey at the end, and that's probably the only thing we really don't like about that um, approach, again, which is it's an old recipe, and people have done it for a long time, and it's antiviral, it's a very good tonic, but it's not good to heat honey. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to keep honey raw um, from an enzyme perspective as well as other nutrients that are denatured when honey is heated. So we don't mind heating, of course, maple syrup or other sugars. That's really all, the only sugar we really use is maple syrup or honey, and we definitely don't like to heat honey. So that's not ideal. Um, this is why we are really a big fan of our seaberry oxymel, which is um, apple cider vinegar, for just a little bit honey and, and sea berry, sea buckthorn juice, because that's enzymatic and totally raw. Um, so, but we do try to just add honey at the end as it's cooling and either freeze or sterile can it, which does heat it up, obviously, if you're sterile canning it. That's how we process all of our elderberry. Um, good luck with that. Thanks a lot. Hi, Jack. This is a question in regards to a former comment you made about medical folders from your wife. To be more elaborate, um, my daughter recently found out that she has a small heart condition. She's 17, but we, in the past, we were leaving her home, and we were wondering if we left her home, what would happen in an event that she needed help, and you kind of answered that question in one of your recent podcasts, but I was wondering if you could elaborate on um, the folder that you had for your wife. Thank you. We love the show. Well, first, I wish you and your, your daughter and your, your whole family the best and hope that you're able to deal with this situation. Um, I don't have a lot more to tell you than I did on that last episode. I'll, I'll try to expand on a little bit and, uh, and give the basics of it for people that may not have heard that episode. But my wife dealt with a condition at one time in her life, and since her surgeries had no relapses, thank God, uh, called trigeminal neuralgia. And trigeminal neuralgia up until modern surgeries were uh, made available that, that either uh, stopped it without any real consequences or, in extreme examples, they would actually sever the fifth trigeminal nerve, which is the nerve that runs along the bottom of your jawline. Um, if that was, if there's nothing else you could do, you just basically kill that nerve because you'd rather have like this mild facial paralysis than this ongoing electric pain. And it was known before these surgeries were available, and there's several different ones now, it was known as a suicide illness. Because a lot of people in the past that came down with it up, say, a hundred years ago and back, and didn't even really understand and know what it was, ended up taking their life. Because it was that severe and uh, just a, a horrific pain, uh, akin to being tortured, uh, that came and went. And as it, the disease progresses, it gets worse and worse and worse. And what it is is a compression of that nerve, usually by an artery or a vein. And there's some bacterial and fungal versions of it as well, because it's a condition, not a disease. It is a condition of the nerve being compressed and demyelinated. So that if you think of a, a coaxial cable, like for your, your cable TV service, where the, the outer uh, uh, shielding begins to touch the inner conductor uh, with an intermittent short. So it's your face going in an sh electrical short circuit. So imagine somebody with an extension cord and a variable electro ray attached to it, 
uh, and connecting it to the nerves in your face and occasionally turning it on and leaving it on for 15 minutes and occasionally turning it on for five seconds and occasionally turning it on and off, on and off, on and off at varying levels of intensity. And we used anti-seizure medications for a long time for that. And uh, those worked, and they started to have side effects, and to get to the point where they were no longer effective, you had to face surgery. So we ended up having to have a surgery called microvascular decompression, uh, where the surgeon was able to determine it was actually an artery, which is the more uh, severe compression of the nerve, generally than a vein, and uh, cut the artery out, cauterized it, put it all back together. And this is like what you call almost brain surgery. Uh, a hole about the size of a 50-cent priest in the back of her head, move the brain stem over, and, and deal with this issue. And as this was progressing and we're getting more and more to where we're going to have to face surgery, we ended up having to go to ER and to have uh, a, a, an anti-seizure medication uh, known as Dilantin given. And, of course, they always think you're fishing for pain medication. So they mean, like, you mean Dilantin. It's like, no, you don't give pain medication to a person with this condition. And I started to realize there could come a day that she has to be rushed to a hospital or an emergency room or something, and I wouldn't be there. So it wasn't really a folder. It was a notebook. It was all her medications. And it was basically what it was is every single question you would expect to be answered, asked in an intake. And, and that's really what it was because they're never going to accept that as a medical record. And the way that would work is you at least have documentation for that intake. And so that's really what that was about. So one way you could get really thorough with that is explain your condition, find someone who is a nurse that works in an ER, works in a hospital, works in a clinic, and say during intake, you know, what, what are the questions you're going to ask that this kid's not going to be able to answer? And have all those, those you know, answers there. That at least gets them through the door. I mean, with women, it's always, are you pregnant? Are you sure? When was your last menstruation? Regardless of whether it has anything to do with what's going on or not, you know, and is it even possible? And, and they never believe the answer, so that has to be there. Um, all of that stuff has to be there. Uh, allergies, uh, history, who's your current doctor? I think that's the best thing you can do is sit down and talk to someone that works as an intake nurse. It shouldn't be that hard to find somebody. It seems like half the people in the world today are in the medical profession. Um, and, and ask that question. You know, what are all the things that you ask a person? What would you do in this situation? You have a minor there, someone that's not their guardians there. They're in a life-threatening situation. What do you need to know? What can we do to make sure that, that, that you guys start taking action immediately? Because I don't know. I don't have any minor children. I don't, I don't have that issue. My issue was totally different. I had a, a wife that I knew would not be able to speak due to pain, but at least could nod her head yes and no. And even if somebody was with her reading the answers and the, the intake person looked over at her, she could confirm it with a, with a head shake because you'd be in a position where you're afraid to speak because it triggers the attack. Um, so it was a little bit different of a situation. It's something we probably need to do more on and figure out a better template for people to use for this type of preparation. Um, how to make sure you have your actual medical records accessible. Of course, Obamacare was supposed to fix all that, but every time you go anywhere, you fill out a new questionnaire answering the same bullshit you've answered a 100,000 times, which is supposed to be one of the saving grace of the Health Care Reform Act, and it's not. It's bullshit. Um, but, but trying to make sure that everything's as accessible as possible, as quick as possible for those situations, I think is really important. I actually think our medical system sucks in, in general. Um, that said, the doctor that performed my watch surgery, I believe, saved her life. So I don't think everything sucks. 
Uh, but my wife was telling me yesterday she was looking at the cost of uh, uh, hip replacement surgery in here versus Spain. And that even with insurance, that uh, the one guy that was writing an article about this basically said, this is what I can do. I can go to Spain and live there for two years really well and get my hip surgery, or I can stay here and just get my hip surgery for the same amount of money. That's how screwed up our medical system is. And insurance is not going to fix it. Insurance is the cause. The, the insurance system in this country is what's caused the escalation in, in costs. So that's, that's a different thing than you're asking about. But I think there's, there's got to be some ways we can mitigate that as well individually. So uh, anybody that has any advice on this particular question, I'd love to hear it. And maybe we can put together a whole show on it eventually because this is an important topic. Um, let's take another question. This one will also be for me. Hey, Jack, this is Joe from Michigan. I had a quick question and wanted to know your thoughts about the smart meters being used in California um, to regulate water, and it looks like power as well. I'm sure you have some thoughts on it, and I would love to hear them. Appreciate all you do. Have a good one. Bye. Uh, the, uh, the conspiracy theories behind smart meters are beyond beyond anything that I want to really go into. Here's how I feel about smart meters. Um, what smart meters actually allow utility managers to do is to throttle things, to not shut your power off but maybe provide you less at a given period of time, to not shut your water off but provide you less at a given period of time, and to do a little bit more accurate readings and to do a little bit more accurate billing in places where you have peak versus non-peak power consumption and things like that. I'm not going to say they're good things, but I'm going to say they're not as bad as everybody makes them out to be. There's people who say, the smart meter is going to make my kid have a brain tumor or whatever. Man, there's 60,000 toxins floating around in the atmosphere. There's wireless signals bouncing all over the place, and your neighbor has one even if you don't. Uh, there's been people that have pretty much laid down like a freaking uh, gauntlet to try to prevent somebody from installing a smart meter. and I just don't care. I just don't care. I think if you want to have autonomy with your power and your water, then you have to provide your own power and your own water. So if you want to go off-grid, then go off-grid. I just think this is one of those things that's been blown way out of proportion. There's so many things that the people, the power elite, are doing to control us. And this is so insignificant compared to so many of those other things. To focus on it, I think it's nothing but you know what Alex Jones does on a slow news day. And, and I wouldn't even, frankly, worry about it. Now, what you're going to say is, well, but Jack, they could shut off my water. They can shut your water off without a smart meter. They can shut off my power. They can shut your power off without a smart meter. They can shut off my gas. They can shut your gas off without a, a smart meter. Here's the deal. What you have without smart meter technology is as follows. You have binary code. One is on and zero is off. You either have it or you don't. So if I'm a power company trying to get through a power short period, my only thing I can do is to take a whole block of people and shut them off with a rolling blackout like we had in California a few years back. If I have this technology available, I can look at my heaviest drawing users and I can throttle them back and still let them at least have power. So that they can go, okay, well, we're in a... So now instead of just being off, 
Maybe now everything's not going to work quite as well as you thought it would, and you start figuring out what you actually put a priority on. Do I think that the government's great? Do I trust the electric companies? Do I trust people making... I don't trust anybody. But that's the reality. You go from on or off to being able to have some. You know, and they say, well, they're going to use a power meter to see what kind of food you have in your refrigerator. This is stupid. And I would just let this go. I mean, of all the things you have to worry about... Now, water restrictions in California are a very real problem. The smart meter technology for water meters is just a part of that. Now, let me say this. My view is it takes a lot more work to retrofit all these water meters than a power meter. Uh, the smart meter technology for, for power, there's, there's electricity okay, to the power meter because it's an electric meter. And generally, the gas meter, if you have a smart gas meter, sitting right next to where the electrical is, so there's power available to do all this stuff. Most people's water meters are in the ground. I don't know how prevalent this water meter technology, smart water meter technology really is, because you got to have something to run it. Now, I, see, I haven't even looked into it because I haven't been on utility water for years. We have a, a, a well. Um, but I guess you could have some sort of a battery that's actually charged as the water flows through and turns the meter. That would be enough to have a wireless signal, and I, I don't know. I don't know how the water stuff actually works. I would tell you this. If you're worried about power and water restrictions, California's not the place to live. It really isn't because you have too many people consuming too much power and too much water in a state that has a predisposition to consume too much of both. It's a desert. So you consume too much water. It gets really hot for a lot of the year, so there's a lot of electrical draw for air conditioning and other needs. So if you're that worried about having shortages of power and water, then I'd move elsewhere. And and that's really what this, this smart meter technology is acknowledging. We can't have everybody using as much as they want all the time, even if they're willing to pay for it, and serve everybody. So you can, you can call that whatever you want to. You can be as upset and pissed off as you want about it, but again, it's back to blood from a stone. You can only get so much out of that stone, and there ain't no blood in it. So when you draw the lake to the, to the dry period where it's dried to the bottom, there's no more water coming out. When the power companies are cranking out electricity as fast as they can, and you exceed their generation capability, then you've done that. And again, they have two choices. They can either throttle heavy volume customers or they can shut entire blocks off. You can either be shut off or have a little less. While I'm not thrilled about either one, I'd rather have a little less than not have any. I'm just saying. Well, Jack, the New World Order is going to target patriots and shut off their power. They don't need a smart meter to do that. The power company can shut you off like that right now and has been able to do so for as long as electricity has gone through electrical meters. Let's take uh, one here for John Pugliano. This is a really great question. I'm waiting to hear myself how John answers this one because I have my own answer to it. So this question is from a listener named Joe. He has a question about paying off his mortgage early. Does it matter what day you send in a monthly extra payment so that it actually goes to the principal? 
If you understand this correctly, the interest is calculated daily. So if you send the extra payment in two days after your regular payment, more goes to the principal. I'm making the I'm, I'm making this complicated. Can you or John address which which is likely the best way to pay off a mortgage early? Save up and drop a big yearly extra payment. Buy weekly payments. Include extra payment with normal payment, or send it in a couple of days after. John Pugliano, what say you on early mortgage payment? Uh, you know me, I'm all about eliminating the debt as soon as possible. Joe asks a very relevant and interesting question about paying off your mortgage early. And this is a question that confuses a lot of borrowers. And that's because there are generally two types of mortgages out there, and it all depends on how the interest is accrued. Now, by Joe's question, he's assuming that his interest is accrued daily. But what I would advise you to do, Joe, is to go back and confirm that with your lender. Confirm with them that they're accruing your mortgage interest on a daily basis because that's one type of mortgage. The other type of mortgage is where your interest is accrued monthly. The distinction is important because if your interest is calculated on a monthly basis, then in any given month, it doesn't matter whether you pay your mortgage payment early or not because you're being charged the same amount of interest for that entire month. So as long as you're paying it by the scheduled due date, you're going to pay the same amount of interest for that month Now, if you pay it a day or three or four days ahead of time, it still doesn't matter. You're not saving any money because they're charging you a lump sum interest for that entire month. So, for example, if you had a 30-year mortgage and you were paying a 5% interest rate, we're just going to use some rough numbers here. Let's say that you had a $200,000 balance. Your interest payment for the month would be something on the order of, say, $833. But this is not including uh, your principal payments or taxes or anything else that may be accumulated in your mortgage. This is simply the interest payment alone. So that's if you're on a monthly accrual basis. Now, by Joe's question, he's indicating that he believes that he's on a daily interest accrual basis. And again, that could be very possible. He does need to check with his lender on that. And if that's the case, then his strategy would be different because every day that he pays his mortgage payment early from that scheduled monthly date or any time he applies more money for the principal, he's going to save on a daily basis because his interest is accruing on a daily basis. Take that same 5% interest rate, divide it by 365, which are how many days there are in a year, and now you're going to understand that Joe would be charged an interest rate of 0.014% every day. That's nearly one and a half basis points on any given day. Now, if you do the math, you'll see that, you know, for a 30-day month, that pretty much works out to the same rate that you're going to pay if you're accruing monthly. But the point we're trying to make here is that when you have a monthly accrual, you're paying that money up front no matter when you make the payment. But if your lender's charging you on a daily basis, then any day early that you make that payment, in my example, you would save nearly one and a half basis points each day. Well, again, on our example of the 5% mortgage, 30-year mortgage on a $200,000 loan, you're talking about over $27 a day savings. So, Joe, if in fact you do have a mortgage where the interest accruals on a daily basis, then a strategy for paying down your mortgage would include not only making additional payments in principle, but also making those payments prior to the scheduled monthly payment. And at $27 a day, you can see how that would add up. Now, just to give you a really high-level rough idea of how this can work in your favor, if you paid your mortgage twice a month rather than just once a month, so basically taking your mortgage payment, dividing it by two, and then paying that amount every two weeks. If you had an interest payment that accrued on a daily basis on a $200,000 mortgage 
for 30 years at a 5% rate by, in effect, paying the exact same amount every month, but just by paying it twice a month instead of once a month. Remember, you're saving over $27 a day, and so over 30 years, you would shave off something like four and a half years off your mortgage. So just by doing that one simple thing, making that extra effort, your 30-year mortgage can be reduced down to like, you know, a 25 and a half year mortgage. These are just rough numbers, but that's just to give you an idea. Taking the time to make two payments every month instead of one, even though you're paying the exact same amount of money every month, would save you something on the order of $25,000 over those 30 years. So if your mortgage is accruing on a daily basis and you have the cash flow to be able to make multiple payments every month, then you should definitely consider working out a plan where you can make bi-weekly or even weekly payments, which for very little effort on your part can save you a lot of money over 30 years. Joe, thank you for your question. I also want to use your question to segue into a little different concept about paying off your mortgage. Now, I personally believe that people should do everything they can to stay out of debt. That includes paying off your mortgage whenever it financially makes sense for you. But not everybody believes that. And I don't necessarily think there's a right or wrong answer there. It's really a personal preference. What I do want to say, though, in reference to my studying of what I call middle-class millionaires, these are just everyday regular people that because they have good wealth-building skills, by the time they're 40 or 50 years old, they can be financially independent. And as I've studied those people over the last 30 years, and as I've worked with them in my own financial practice, and as I've lived that lifestyle myself, I can tell you this. Most of those people do pay off their mortgages early, but not all of them. And the point of building wealth isn't whether you have a mortgage or whether you don't have a mortgage. I would suggest to you that the biggest factor in building wealth has to do with living within your means. So these people that do become middle-class millionaires, it isn't because they were really savvy with their nickels and dimes and they, they made multiple payments and they paid off their mortgage early. It was because they lived their life in such a way that they earned a lot more than they spent. So their lifestyle was not extravagant. And that applied to buying their home as well. The mortgage on their house wasn't as relevant as how affordable that house was. And I would tell you the general rule of thumb is that middle class millionaires don't pay more than two and a half to three times their income on their house. So if you make $100,000, you shouldn't be paying more than $300,000 for your house. If you're making $50,000, you shouldn't be paying more than $150,000 for your house. Now, depending upon what part of the country you live in, that can be a really hard budget to stick to. But that is the bottom line. Whenever you pay more than three times your income on your house, you're decreasing the probability that you're going to be able to build wealth and that you're going to be able to be financially independent when you're, say, 50 years old. So more importantly as to whether you should be paying off your mortgage early or not, I would say just make sure that you're spending significantly less than you're earning and then that you're taking that savings and putting that money to good work for you. Thanks again for the question. If you'd like to hear more about my opinions on the market and overall principles on building wealth, then please check out my podcast, Wealthsteading. It's available in all the normal places, as well as directly at the website, Wealthsteading.com. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. I'd like to add a little bit to that, specifically the the last part of it in, in, in general there, because I agree, and I think there's some things that we could look at to understand more about building wealth in our own lives. Um, of course, you know, I'm going to throw in real quick that I believe that when you're building a productive homestead and that homestead is providing a lot of your needs for you, that that is a big part of building your wealth, and, and John believes that as well. Sticking to the financial aspects here, listening to John made me think of a, a talk show I ended up watching a little piece of, and I've only ever watched talk shows in little pieces. I mean, like the morning and afternoon stuff. My wife used to watch that stuff. She doesn't seem to anymore, but at times she did. And I might, if I was working at home, I would, you know, go into the living room and she'd have Oprah or somebody like that on. This might have been Oprah. 
But this was about the millionaire next door author. And I think he was on there. And there were several next door millionaires, like John Sonoff, middle class millionaires. And one of the guys that was up there that was a middle class millionaire, and I believe he worked in landscaping was his profession. And he had his own small business in landscaping. And he was a multimillionaire. And he said, and I don't necessarily advocate this technique, but I advocate the approach. He said one of the things he had done for years is he was a member of Costco and he, you know, got discounts on everything that he bought for his employees and his business and stuff and got his office supplies there and all. But because he was there a couple times a week, he would stop and eat, um, lunch at Costco one or two days a week. And that even though he was on the go, it was probably less than he could prepare a lunch for for himself. A dollar fifty got him a great big hot dog or sausage and a drink. And he would just stop at Costco and have this, this. And there was a lady in the audience. And you can see this. She had like the, may I talk to the manager haircut thing going on. And, and probably decked out more money in clothing than she could afford. And, and she was like a little indignant about this and some of the other things. That was just the one she honed in on. But many of the other money-saving things that, you know, the, the, the pennies and the, and the dimes that John was saying not necessarily individually are that important. And she picked on that one, and she she had a very down. I don't remember exactly what she said. It was a pretty down, uh, downgrading look toward this individual. And his response was, "But that's why I'm here, and you're there. That's why I'm here, telling people how to build wealth, and you're there trying to figure out how." And she got a little indignant with that, and he said, "Ma'am, I'm looking at you, and I think you're probably ten years older than me. Are you a millionaire?" And she said, well, "No." He said, "Well, that's what I'm trying to tell you." If you don't want to do these things, you don't have to. But when they're put together in a total system, they work. And I, I agree with that because there was a lot about investing and stuff on that. One actually caught my attention. I kind of watched a little bit more of it. And I think the investing is important. But you also have to understand the, the power of, of your income can be lost to debt or can be reclaimed from debt and ch handle, you know, channeled into investments. Uh, John just said, okay, if we, we, we spend the same money. It doesn't actually cost me any more money every month than it does right now to structure my payments on my home differently. Over 30 years, I can spend, I can save an extra $25,000. If I actually put that money to work for me, what's it worth to me over the life of my retirement? Another $50,000 or $60,000 into my retirement? And if that $50,000 or $60,000 is extra money I wouldn't have had, and it goes toward the end of my retirement, and my retirement lasts me 25 or 30 years, what's it worth then from that one little thing? So I think the nickels and dimes we can get way too obsessive about. I've met people that I can't stand. People that, 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 that squeeze two nickels together and try to turn them into a quarter instead of a dime. People that are mooches. People that, that, that never pick up the, the, the dinner tab. People that look to save every penny they can all the time. People that sacrifice when they don't have to uh, and to their own misery. And I don't think that's a way to live either. But I think actually thinking before you spend a dollar does a lot to determine whether you become an early retiree who's wealthy or a person saying, hi, welcome to Walmart, here's your cart. I really do. And I think we need to think about these things like that and look at wealth development as a total package. That's why I like John. That's because of what he does. I have one more question today. Let's finish up with that, and we'll wrap up for the weekend. Hey, Jack. Jesse from Vermont. I've got a question about grapevines. Uh, I've got a fence that uh, I believe it's 
two inches by three inches uh, mesh there, and I was wondering if I'd be able to grow the grapevines up there and um, not have any damage come off the fence. If not, um, didn't know if it would be feasible to grow them up a tree, and then how would the harvesting take place, being that um, my trees are all fairly high with no lateral branches at, you know, four or five foot height. Uh, any other information would be appreciated. Well, Thanks, first, guys. the fence Bye. you're talking about sounds like a chain-link fence, and I just put 50 muscadines and wine grapes on a chain-link fence uh, going across hundreds and hundreds of feet and put in irrigation to support them. So that tells you what my thoughts are on whether or not uh, a fence can support your grapes. Now, that doesn't mean I actually know what kind of fence you have. And the majority of my fence actually has T-posts uh, in addition to the chain link. And those T-posts are running two strands of barb wire. And I'm going to train what you call with grapes the cordons more onto that barb wire than I am to the fence itself. So it's almost like there's this beautiful heavy gauge wire trellis sitting there with the fence and the fence just happens to be on the property line and that makes an effective use of space you don't have to have that i also have a significant part of the fence that's just horse fence and it, it is i believe it's two by four grid horse fence uh at, at five feet high and that's going to work perfectly as well also in the tipo so if it's whether it's chain link or horse fencing it, it should work fine for you assuming the fence is in good shape and good repair a typical uh, grapevine will produce on average about 20 pounds of grapes, a muscadine more along the lines of 30. A grapevine will take up a space of roughly 8 feet, 8 to 10 feet, and a muscadine as much as 16. So it's not that much weight spread out over a significant ratio of the fence. Even if we doubled it and cut it in half, most fences... Uh, could easily support something on the lines of, let's say, 10 pounds across two feet. And grapevines, as they grow, become thicker and tend to do a lot more supporting of their own weight. We're only supporting the cordons, not the entire plant. So it should not be an issue. Now, fences are great, attractive places to train your vines onto. However, they're not the most optimum thing in the world for grape cultivation. They're not as optimum as a trellis where you have easy access from both sides, so there's a little bit more management issue. But clearly, since I'm doing it, it's not something that would prevent me from doing that. You just need to know that. That's, that's some additional thoughts on that. If you wanted to and you had well-spaced fence posts, it would be pretty easy to go in there with, let's say, T-posts that are taller than the fence, drive them into the ground adjacent to the posts, wire them to the fence, and put up above your fence a, a true, more uh, conventional trellis wire that would have a little bit easier access from both sides. I wouldn't do it. I don't think it's worth it, but you could. So on the fencing, go for it. Throwing muscadines on your chain-link fence in the south is an old southern tradition uh, that's been done on countless homesteads forever, along with barbed wire fences and, 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 and horse fences and everything else. Uh, you can find to this day um, homesteads that have fallen in on themselves and still have remnants of fencing and great big, huge, massive, untended uh, muscadines on them. Uh, it's really not the way to do it, and usually the fence will collapse then, so you do have to make sure you're pruning your grapes. Uh, you also have to think about the type of grapes. Where you are in a northern climate, you're going to have to look to things like some of the Riesling clones and things like that to do well in northern climates to be able to grow grapes. 
this leads me to the, the, the tree question and possibly the fence question with a caveat if you do it on the fence. It may be much better for you if you want a vine fruit with heavy production to look at Arctic hardy kiwis and other hardy kiwis like Isai hardy kiwi. Here's why. You will need a male pollinator for this, but those vines will produce about 100 pounds per vine once mature. Um, they can be picked before they're fully ripe, kept cold, and then put out to ripen on a shelf so they have a better storage life than a grape. They're more unique than a grape, harder to come by than a grape, and will do everything that a grape will do and more. They taste differently, but you can make wonderful wines from hardy kiwis. They have a higher production capacity, and they will handle your cold climate. In fact, they will do outstanding in your climate. I wish I could grow them as well as you can up there down here. So that might be a different alternative for making use of that space. They also will work much better for you as a tree crop, as something you would put up a tree, because they naturally grow in that environment, and they will get very big over time and fill the entire top of a tree. And while you won't be able to harvest them early um, and get the storage life out of them, as they get big and up into the canopy of a tree, as they ripen a good shake, a lot of them will fall down for you, so you can harvest them that way. As for harvesting from a tree... I have just recently trained one of my muscadines into a tree, into three vines going three different laterals and across other trees. I'll try to get a video out for you this weekend on how I'm training that vine, because I wanted to do that anyway. These trees do have some lateral branches, but none of them are four or five feet high. All would require something like a step ladder to harvest, so don't be afraid of training up a little bit higher. The key is, with grapes, you need a lot of sun. And that means that you need to train them on the branches that allow for the light to come in underneath and give those those grapes a significant amount of sun. So that would be one issue. Uh, the, one way you could you know one way you could do that is go a little bit higher up and, and train them out, or go with kiwis, which will get up in the canopy and and do their own thing. You're just going to need a male. The other option is this: if you have trees that are relatively closely spaced and you have a south-facing opening underneath them, so let's say you have two trees with no significant shade in front of them, so they're south-facing open under the canopy, so you're going to get a lot of sun into them, and your branches are way way up there. Now you have an interesting opportunity. What you can do is what I'm doing, and that is you train the vine up one tree to a height that you want. I wouldn't go five feet. I'd do something you could easily walk underneath. But if you train that vine at, let's say, eight feet, and you have grapes hanging down from it, they're right in a range where you can reach up and pick them, or a small step stool would give you access to them. Run a wire across or a anything across from one tree to the next and train them across And in time, that wire can probably even go away as that, that vine thickens and becomes somewhat self-supporting. You can then uh, train and trim off of that vine and keep the grapes in reach. Maybe you do have to provide some permanent support. If you needed to provide some permanent support, the way you could do it without damaging your trees would be as follows. You get the insulated wire-style clotheslines like they do for old school clotheslines, except they have like a, it's like a, there's a steel cable in there and there's a piece of rubber across the top of it. You make that what you, you put it across and you can use clamps to, uh, to, to put those onto your trees without totally circling in the trees. Take an old, uh, garden hose and cut a length where your loops are so that, the, that you have the insulated clothesline inside a piece of garden hose and that's what's on the tree and you leave enough space. So that the, so that the tree can grow into that space. 
somewhere in that put in a, I, I don't remember what you called them, but they're for tensioning fences and other things, like a, like a down guy for a power pole or a, a telephone pole. And basically you have an eye hook on both sides of it, and then there's like a, it almost looks like all thread on the one side of the eye hook, and you can turn it, and they tension, I guess they're called tensioners, uh, and you, you can tension a wire. If you set it so it has to be pretty far in to do the tension between your two trees when you first set it up, and then as it begins to, the trees begin to grow and it, the tension gets a little bit high, you can just back the tension off whenever you want. You can also easily remove it and service your vine and, and adjust things with it that way. So rather than trying to train it up the tree, what you can do with your grapevines is train it up a tree to a height and across to another tree using a system like that. And that way you can keep an eye on things. And if you use clamps, uh, cable clamps, to put your ends of your cable together and leave some extra cable on both ends. As your tree grows and requires more space, it's really easy to take a couple nuts out and uh, allow some more space and then take your tension up with your tensioning uh, uh, mechanism. And that's like the best way I can think of to do that. It's very secure. It's very stable. You then turn a problem into the solution. The tree's too high. The solution is by going lower, those grapes still get your sun. That would work equally well and possibly in your climate better with kiwis than grapes. In fact, I'm going to really steer you, uh, Jesse, toward kiwis over grapes in a New Hampshire climate. I'm not saying you can't do grapes in the New Hampshire climate. What I'm saying is you will have much more consistent, higher productivity results with hardy kiwis. You'll get more pounds per foot of vine and more consistent, reliable production by going to that. And with the cabling mechanism that I'm talking about, you'll be able to do that very well. I would like to show you that, but I'm not going to build one because I don't need to. With muscadines, as the, as the vines age, they get very big. They get tree-like. And my system is being trained using a combination of plant tape, which is the green stretchy stuff, and jute twine. And as the vines make the rounds around the trees, eventually that twine is going to biodegrade and be removed. They might need a little support in their second year. I'll just put another piece in there for them to help hold them up. But the, the muscadine vine gets thick enough that eventually that can go away. With kiwi, it would be the same thing. If you train your kiwis into that system, Uh, in time, those kiwi vines will get thick enough. I've seen kiwi vines bigger around than my forearm, uh, going 60 feet up into an oak tree with, with a canopy 60 feet wide from one vine. There's a Jeff Lawton video of that tree. I can't remember which video it is where he visits that, and it's up in New England. I don't remember exactly where, but I've seen other footage of that tree. So those kiwi vines can get big enough and strong enough to support themselves. But that wire system would get you there over a number of years. A little piece of advice with that. Grease, grease, and grease. Not oil, grease. Big, thick, heavy grease over your clamps, the nuts, and your tensioner. Um, something that, you know, uh, lines of like a, a white grease. Um, just wherever you could have a rust problem. It's not my favorite stuff, but... That will make sure that later on when you want to uh, make adjustments, you'll be able to, you won't have things rusted shut. And about twice a year, I'd check on that and maybe add a little bit to it. That will keep things nice and clean and rust-free. And unlike something like WD-40, you spray on it, it'll last longer and it won't drip 
onto your other things and cause uh, additional environmental hazards. So that's how I'd handle that question. I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. I hope you're enjoying the new expert panel uh, format. Again, if you have a question for an expert panel member, please send it to me with TSP expert question in the subject line. Give me your question up front, your details to follow. Make it as concise and on point as possible. And it's very possible that you'll hear yourself in a future episode of today's show. I hope everybody has a great weekend. We have another severe weather weekend for the Central Plains in the South including down here in Texas where I'm at. It doesn't look like the tornado threat is anywhere near as high as it was last week, uh, but we've had rain and then rain and then rain, and flash flooding is uh, uh, definitely a threat, and there's been more people killed this year from flooding than from tornadoes, and that is typical every year. Flooding is a serious danger. We had one flash flood where a police car ended up in a hole seven feet deep, and fortunately, the way that the, the, the cruiser went in and tipped upward instead of downward, the officer was able to get out of the vehicle. That was down south of us a few weeks ago, and, and the reason was it didn't look like that much water going across the road, but the road was gone. The road was gone. So when, they, when the guy tried to drive through it, The car fell down into the hole with the water running over it. Had that car gone nose down, that guy would have never got out of his car and he'd be dead today. I want you to think about that. He got lucky because the way the hole was is the car went by its little loop and the back end slid in. If he would have went nose first into that hole, he'd be dead. You are not opening a car door when it's seven feet down. And, yeah, you can open a window, but... <laughs> Everything has electric windows today. It doesn't always work when it's underwater. And thinking in that type of a terrifying situation might be really hard to do. So I'm not guaranteeing you the guy would be dead, but there's a high probability that officer would have lost his life because he didn't follow the olden acronym they're always telling us, turn around, don't drown. Please be careful with these flooding situations. Um, it may very well be the case that we have significant flooding beyond just these flash floods to deal with by the end of this week, and we're being forecast to get four to five inches of rain right where I live. Uh, my swells are full. I actually have a time-lapse camera for you guys. I want to set up and film the swells filling and emptying. Uh, they haven't emptied. Uh, this has been the, you know, I've got mosquito dunks in the swales now for the first time ever because we keep getting so much rain, uh, it, it won't go down. Uh, there's no real, there's not really a lot of room left for water. Everything's soaked. Uh, yesterday it didn't rain. I finally had the water dry up. I had a lot of my probably had four inches of standing water sitting on it. Um, this is a serious situation that people take as not being so serious. We understand when softball-sized hail hits you in the head, it kills you. We understand that when an F3 tornado rips through someplace like it did in Van, Texas, that you can lose your life. We, we don't respect the flooding enough. And then just general storm preps, having your blackout kit, having your backup power. A lot of times you don't have to have really severe wind storms and hail to have power outages when you have large flooding events and things like that. So be weather aware this week. Take care of yourself. Keep the questions coming. Keep on building that better life. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. 